the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. Joining me on this episode, it is Mick Box from Uriah Heap. Their new album is called Living the Dream. I have heard it. It is absolutely fantastic. And then after that, we have got Doro. She has a new album called Forever Warriors Forever United. It is a double album featuring 25 songs, wow, including a cover of Don't Break My Heart Again from Whitesnake. And we will end with the one, the only, Eddie Trunk. Yes, uh, Eddie and I spend a good hour talking about all things rock and, of course, yes, Kiss. And joining me for all of this is from the band Red Rain, drummer Sammy Lee. Good day, Sammy. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing, Mitch? Thanks for having me. Good, good. I'm doing great. Now, you know, folks out there may not know the band Red Rain, and I do suggest that to get started, they should head over to Red Rain, that is R-E-I-G-N band.com, and check them out. You are a, a relatively new band, right? Only been around for about five years, give or take? Yep, that's correct. So yeah, About five years. And, and so let, let's get started here with Uriah Heap and Mixbox. They have a new album called Living the Dream, as I mentioned. It's a great album. And you guys... As a new band, you want to sort of start living the dream, right? Is that that's right? <laughs> we cer- we certainly do, we certainly do. Uh, you know, Uriah Heap's such a great band and such an iconic band, and love to live that dream. Talk to me just real quick before we get over to Mick Box. What are some of the challenges a new band faces? Because I, I can tell you, you know, for example, from the media perspective, when somebody comes to you and says. Do you want to talk to Rob Halford? You go, mm-hmm. And you go, you want to talk to Alice Cooper? You go, mm-hmm. They say, you want to talk to Red Rain? You go, well, okay, well, let me see, right? And, and, and that's, that's, a, that's an unfortunate reality, but it is. So how do you sort of get over that hump and get fans paying attention to you and get that new self-titled EP out there and, and, and have people go, yeah, you know what? I'm going to check this band out. What, what is sort of your, for the lack of a better word, marketing plan? Sure. So, you know, the funny thing is, Mitch, it's, it's um, you know, people in today's world, obviously, with um, the music, everything's such a quick hit. It's, um, you know, you know, like when you go to Apple, you click a song. If you don't like it the first 30 seconds, you're gone. The thing with the, a band is a band has to chip away at their fan base, at the media to, you know, you know, you have to build it one fan at a time. And that's really what we've been doing. You know, the, the EP came out. Uh, close to a couple years ago, but we've just been chipping away with live shows. Uh, we have a publicist that's been chipping away at you know some publicity, and no, it, no it pun intended, time. right? Because his name is no, Chip. no pun intended, right? <laughs> but but the, you know the funny thing is, is it's not a, it's not a quick fix, and it's not a it's not a it's not going to be you know you know from playing a bar to rock star in arenas. It is literally one brick at a time. And it's taken us this long to get where we are. We're starting to get the name out, but it's it's taken two two and a half years to get out. So, you know, you got to have patience. You really got to love what you do because the guys in the band and I, we love playing together. We love creating new songs, and that's it. It's patience. It really is. So, um, when you look at a band like Uriah Heap that's been doing this for about fifty years, do you see yourself in that sort of trajectory where you want to do this for fifty years? Or is it like, you know what, if I could get a good seven years out of this, I'll call it, you know, a day and, and I'll be satisfied with that. 
I'm not sure I got 50 years in me, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean, I would love to do it as long as I can continue to do it. So, um, you know, to be honest with you, we're not a young band. We're not young kids, but uh, we're going to continue to do it as long as we can and as long as people like what we do. It seems everywhere we have played, we've won over, you know, fan after fan after fan. So as long as people continue to like what we're doing, we're just going to continue to do it. Really no time frame. No time. But I, I would love to do it for 50 years. Yeah, wouldn't that be something? Um, just Maybe. quickly, though, for, for bands, not for bands, sorry, for, for fans that are unaware uh, of the band, musically, where do you sort of slot in? Are, are you, you know, metal, death metal, pop, rock? Where do you sort of see your musical pedigree? Well, you know, it's funny because <clears throat> those terms are those terms are so scattered and meaning you know when i when i was a little younger you know acdc was heavy metal you know and now acdc's rock so i would consider us a rock hard rock melodic band uh we have been compared to the dawkins the van halens the aerosmith that that type of genre right which is which is some of the uh, the greatest music and of course your name sammy lee is 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 sort of like the conglomeration of the two Van Halen frontmen, right? It's like David Lee and and Sammy Hague, right? You're you're Sammy Lee. I love it. Well, I got I got to be honest with you, um, and this is where it gets sticky. I am a purist Van Halen fan. Van Halen changed my life, and there's really <laughs> I hate to say this because I like Sammy Hagar, but there's only one singer of Van Halen, and that's where I got my nickname is David Lee from is Sammy Lee. People were calling me Sammy Lee because of David Lee Roth. I'm I'm a David Lee Roth fanatic. Yeah, da- David's great. And all right, so since you're a Van Halen fan, and before we get over to Mick Box here uh, of Uriah okay. Heat, uh, Gary Sharon came in. I think the the music or the songs that they gave him to sing on that album were probably misguided. But overall, if you look at some of the live performances where he was bringing back a lot of the David songs that Sammy had right. been ignoring, uh, he did a great job. He did. He, I mean, he did. He, he got a lot of flack that he probably didn't deserve. And, and of course, you're the diehard. Where do you sort of see Gary? Was he sort of unfor- you know, victim of unfortunate circumstances, or was he just really the wrong guy? Well, you know, again, I'm a purist, but I'm a purist in music in general. I- I'd rather see the bands that are out today. Personally, I'd rather see as many original members as I can. It- 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 there's something about the original members in a band that brought that magic. And... You know, when Sammy came, uh, and I love, I, I really liked Sammy Hagar, but I instantly disliked him. With Gary, I completely ignored Van Halen 3. It, it was not, it just wasn't, it wasn't the same. And I think, yeah, I think it was probably a little unfair, but Van Halen fans are brutal. I mean, you know this as well as I do. I mean, there's, there's no middle ground. It's you like Sammy, you like Dave, or unfortunately, there aren't, I don't know many people that like the Van Halen 3 album, but uh, for me... Um, it was only one Van Halen. Right. And, and of course, right now in 2018, going into 2019, from, from all that we can see around the world here, there is zero Van Halen, which is exceptionally, is exceptionally unfortunate. Um, so let us get over to Mick Box of Uriah Heap. The new album is called Living the Dream. It is a fantastic rock album. And so without further ado, here is the one, the only guitarist. Mick Box. We are speaking with Uriah Heap's Mick Box. The new album is Living the Dream. Mick, an 
absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you again. Well, thank you, my friend. Happy days. And I'm glad to be here and uh, glad we're talking about new product, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, isn't it great to talk about new product? And, and you <clears> know, <throat> I, I have been, of course, sent an advanced copy and I've had a chance to listen to it numerous times. And it amazes me, um, not, not how, how good it is because we knew it was going to be good, but there's an energy and a fire <clears throat> That sounds almost like a debut album. I mean, just, so so let's start with that. Just, you know, you're not resting on your laurels. This is a full-on rock album. Yeah, I, I think basically it's down to, to, to uh, I think, one word, really, passion. You know, we've still got passion for our music that we've always had, you know. And um, I think with that in mind, you know, it gives us the energy. Every time we go in, we, we're, we're all buzzing to do it and get it right and everything else. And we recorded it as a band in the studio. It wasn't, you know sending files across the world, with the world, you know, by email. We were um, in the room together just banging it out, you know, and I think that's the best way to do it because then you get the, the band on one pulse, which is which is perfect to me. Yeah, it really is. So, so <clears throat> let, you know, before we started recording, you said it's nice to do an interview talking about new products. So talk to me about the importance of having new music because, listen, you've been around for 50 years. You could easily put your name on the marquee and just come in and do the hits or, or do Demon and Wizards in full or whatever, and, and fans would show yeah. up and you'd get away <clears> with it. Um, without sounding facetious, why bother? Oh, we still got ambition, I guess is it. <laughs> you know, we, we, we can never be um, a band that just rests on our laurels. Although we're very proud of our history, we couldn't rest on it. You know, because you end up being a shoegazing band, don't you? You know, we, we could never be that. Um, we always feel that moving forward energizes um, the old stuff too when we take it out on the road, you know. So it's a very important thing for us to do is keep moving forward with new music. It really is. Uh, <clears throat> and, and, of course, you, you talk about being a shoegazing band. I saw the band in Montreal earlier this year, I believe, back in January. There was such a passion in that performance. I mean, it was my first chance because the band hasn't been uh, to Montreal as much as I would like. And I just saw that and I went, Wow. They are not just calling it in. They're not just a heritage act that's showing up and giving you 75 minutes, taking a paycheck and going home. Um, so, so talk to me about the importance of the live performance and still delivering that live experience to the fans. Well, the live, live performance is, is, is very all important to, to your eye heap, you know, because um, I've always said a working band's a, a, a happy band, and that's why you see us all smiling so much. <laughs> We're always out on the road, you know. We do minimum of 125 shows a year around the world in 61 countries so you know it's something we love and we love doing it and we love making music together and we love playing music together and 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 part of that is about communication you know and getting out to all these places like montreal and all the other cities around the world you know uh, it's that communication you get on stage with the audience which is all important and it's a real buzz you know you you can't get a better buzz in the world than that no you really can't so so let's let, let's in fact uh, start looking back a little bit here uh, <clears throat> over the years you have had a uh, numerous amount of vocalists or you've had different vocalists let's put it that way david john ken peter etc um, yep. talk to me quickly <clears throat> about what bernie has brought to the band and capturing not only the classic sound, but also making Uriah Heep his own band. I think when we first got Bernie involved, it was about the, uh, it was about uh, 1986, and he came on. And, and I had a, a, a really, really long tour of Germany booked, and I remember us going out on the road, and this was, you know, like six nights a week for months. And um, Bernie, <clears throat> first of all, was very durable. We could handle it. And secondly, it was the first time that actually... Um, fans were coming up to me and saying, Mick, now, now we've got a heap singer. 
So that ga- that gave me a, a point of reference there to to analyse what was going down, and I think it's basically because Bernie's vocal range and sound can encompass nearly all the singers that have been there before him. So he can actually touch any one of them and still deliver it in, in, in a great style. Yeah, he really can. So talk to me about finding that replacement for David, because you tried with Peter, you tried with Ken. What was it about them that just didn't seem to, to connect or just didn't work and you had to keep searching until we got to Bernie? Well, um, I think I think that's, it's always going to be a search, isn't it? And you always want to continue playing. So, I mean, we got... <clears throat> John Lawton, in, I guess, was the, the first replacement from um, from David. And John bought his own style. You know, John had a really, really powerful set of pipes, but he didn't have the charisma and image that David had. So, um, But we still had great success all around the world with it, especially over in Europe. Um, you know, we're playing all the major festivals. We had three top ten singles. It was all, all going for us very, very well. Um, and then, of course, that sort of fell, fell a bit through circumstance. And... Um, you know, we got in um, Pete Goldby and we, we did the, um, the Bombardier, which is a very big album for us, especially over in America. Uh, it went top 40 and everything, you know. So at each stepping stone was another big step, but it's only really when I got to Bernie that I actually heard those words, now we have a, a heap singer. <laughs> and um, I can only articulate the way I've just done, you know. It's because his voice and his range encompasses everything that's gone on before him and he can handle it very easily. Yeah, he really can. So so let me get back to living a, dr- uh, living a dream for a second. When you've had 50 years of career and you're coming in to make a new album, how do you approach the songwriting? Is it like, hey, we need to make another Demons and Wizards, or is it about still pushing boundaries and still doing something the band hasn't done? We, we try not to look back, to be honest. Um, basically, you know, we're very very aware of our heritage, so that's always carrying with us all the time. Um, for instance, you know, we'll... we'll We'll, we'll have a particular song and another song standing beside and one of it will be typically heat and one won't be, you know. Um, so we're very aware of that, but, you know, we, we're never going with any preconceived ideas. Usually it's, um, I'm a writer, and I write every day, whether it be a riff, a verse, um, a chord sequence, or, or a melody, or um, a blog, or a, uh, you write a book, write a story, write something, you know. So I'm always com- compiling all these um, ideas all the time. And when it's time to do an, time to do an album, the, the principal writers are myself and Phil Lanz and their keyboard player. So I get all my ideas together on, on, from the guitar. He gets all his ideas together from the keyboard, and we put them together and see what fits, what doesn't, etc. and start formulating songs. And we usually do the music first, then we do the, the melody, then we do the lyrics, and then we present it to the band. Now, <clears throat> with the band, it's a different kettle of fish. You, you, you can present something to the band that you've been working on for nine months, and it's in the bin in nine seconds. <laughs> You know, so you have to have very broad shoulders. So we take as much as we can that we think is all very heap-ized, if you like, and see what they like, and we let them choose the ones that we work on. And Because, you know, you want five-fifths effort on everything, every song you, you, you bring to the table. And um, we do that, and then we, we, we go into rehearsals, um, knock up the arrangements, and then go and record them. Right, and that's a, that's a great way to do it. So, so as we are, are moving forward here... You know, the the. In end... other words, sorry, sorry to interrupt there, but what I'm trying to say is we let everything happen naturally. Right. You know, we never try to force anything, <clears throat> and that's why there's a couple of long songs on this particular album, "Living the Dream," that are very, I guess, can be under prog banner. Um, we they we just felt those songs needed to to breathe, and not be put in the normal format. You know, and um, I think works very very successfully in that regard. Yeah, they actually came out great. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so so talk to me then about that. You know, now that we're 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 moving on here, 
there is a great freedom, I would imagine, in, <clears throat> in approaching a record now because back in the day, you must have been talked about to the rate. Um, sorry, the record company must have said, "Try to make this radio friendly. Try to make this a single." Try. Is it more um, pleasing of an experience now to make an album? <clears throat> Uh, it, it, you know, at this stage in your career, um, I wouldn't say it's more pleasing. No, I think I think it's it's. Um, I think back in in the seventies when you signed an album deal, you signed for six, seven albums, and you grew with the label, and the label grew with you. So there was a, an investment from the label in that regard. I think it's slightly different now, but I think because the band's been around long enough and we've got a track record, I think um, Frontiers were, were, were nice enough to just leave us alone to come up with the goods because they they knew we would, and luckily we did, and they're very happy. But I wouldn't say it's any easier. I think the format's just is still the same. I think one of the differences would be that you know, um, you know, sometimes you haven't got the time you want to spend on something, you know, or or you can't, you can't it never fits into your touring schedule or something like that. You know, that's when it gets a bit difficult. Um, but you know, we 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 I mean, we recorded that album in 19 days. That so wasn't a problem for us. We went into Chapel Studios with Jay Ruston, who was a fantastic producer. And um, I think what he did was keep the the character of the band, but make it sound really fresh. And and today, which is which is exactly how we started this interview, I think when you said those words. <laughs> In fact, let me let me quickly talk to you about Jay Rustin because he he is a man who uh, was raised basically in the town over here, Ottawa, Canada. Uh, moved yeah. to the states recently. Has been known to handle bands like Anthrax and Stone Sour and and, and sort of more thrash metal, heavy metal. Which is certainly not where I would list Uriah Heap, perhaps rightly or wrongly. Uh, talk to me about getting a producer of that nature and not going to sort of an old stock guy who's been around for 40 years. Yeah, we didn't want to go old school. We wanted that fresh approach. And, and Jay was the perfect person because um, we were big fans of his through uh, the Winery Dogs. So that was our first entry with Jay. And we liked what he did with them. And um also, our, our management look after our, um, other bands like um, Black Star Riders and Thin Lizzy and Saxon and Europe. And Jay's done some work with them, whether, whether it be producing or mixing or whatever. But he always exceeded our manager's expectations w- with the end result, which is a good sign. And the thing to me, you know, yes, he does do Anthrax. Yes, he does Stone Sour and all those bands. But the great thing about Jay is he keeps the character of the band, but he seems to bring something to it. And that's exactly what we're looking for. You know, we didn't want to um, change our template, which has been a musical template that's been very successful all these years. But we needed to find a fresh approach to it. And I think he he came on board and did that in droves, to be honest. Yeah, he really did. And uh, by the way, speaking of speaking of Ace Trump and uh, the other management there, um, Black Star. Yeah, yeah. Black Star Riders and Uriah Heap would be a fantastic bill if you want to bring that to Canada. well, that's say. a good idea. I mean, all we've got to do is get it past the management, isn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah, because Black Star Riders, to me, are, are anyway. And I don't want to get into them, but it, it's they're one of my favorite bands of the last ten years. They they just they, they know what they're doing. Just so great. Uh, um, once again, they deliver and they have passion, which is which is really really you know which I like. Right, and of course, you can never go wrong with Scott Gorm. Um, no, not at all, mate. No, he's a wonderful player. And a wonderful and a great guy. Exactly. Um, so, so let me talk about <clears throat> moving forward here. Do you start looking, and not to sound sort of morbid, but do you start looking at the new album as the last new album, or are the plans still to move forward and have another one in, in 2019, 2020? You know, are, are you at that point where you start thinking about winding this down, 
or no? no? Not not at all, not at all. No, no. We never never put brick walls up. <laughs> now I'm I'm already write I'm already writing bits and pieces that'll probably be used on the next one. So, you know, you you never put brick walls up or, or give you those sort of um those uh weights around your neck, you know. We always look like we're okay, we've got living the dream coming up, it's great, we're heading toward our fiftieth anniversary, that's great, we've got that to celebrate, we'll do another album, that's great. Um, maybe we'll get a book out. That's great. You know, you know, we never, we never think of any end at all. You know, I mean, as long as we've got our health and we look after ourselves very well, um, because we we want to continue doing what we love. Um, there's no reason to stop. You know, it's a great place to be in your eye. You know, and when we're doing a job that we love, and we're going around the world doing it. You know, so many people have got jobs that they just have that job to try and pay the bills, but they don't really particularly like it. And so we're in an enviable position, which is probably what we call the album Living the Dream, because uh, that kind of sums it all up. So there, there is no five-year plan as to we need to do this 50th anniversary tour, we need to put out a new album, and then we need to go retire down in Malibu and say, hey, it's been great. <laughs> we we we're not thinking like that. No, retiring is something you do to your car. Right, right. <laughs> What? Put new tyres on. No, we never think of that at all, no. And this is what we do, this is what we love, so why would we stop doing it, you know? Right, and I, I'm trying to think who it was. It might have been Mick Jagger or, or Alice Cooper who said, retiring is what you do for, from jobs you hate. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> right. Um, the, over the years, the band has put out uh, numerous <clears throat> live albums, the last one being in 2015. With this 50th anniversary tour coming up, do you see yourself putting together a new live package? I think it's it's um, it's all possible. At the moment, we're 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 deep and immersed in 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 the living the dream world at the moment. So it's very hard to see clearly you know, clearly past past that at the moment because we've got you know two month tours booked to the end of the year. Then we we fire up again in in the new year and we do another European run that takes us to Japan, takes us to Australia, takes so you know South America. We've got all those sort of things going on. So and um, but. As with Uriah Heap, everything happens in a natural process. You know, while we're doing that, along will be thoughts and discussions about the 50th anniversary. And along that would be thoughts of when we're going to do the next album. You know, and it all comes naturally to us. You know, we never tried to force it because I think when you when you do force it, 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 it never happens for some reason. I don't know why. Right, because force never works. Um, let me just take you back here to this album, Return to Fantasy from 1975. It sure. was, of course, your highest charting uh, UK album. It did very well in other countries. <clears throat> um, talk to me about that time and that album, because, you know, we always look back and say, well, Demons and Wizards is the magic album stuff. But Return to Fantasy had a certain unique characteristic to it and, and certainly very interesting. And, of course, Lee Kerslake on drums, John Wetton on bass, uh, David Byron, I mean, that was a super group before super group existed. So, so just quickly talk to me about that album and, and recording it and what it meant to the band in terms of uh, just everything, moving the band forward, uh, charts and just everything. Yeah, I, I just think that, um, of course, Demons and Wizards was the big one for us simply because it, it took us onto the world stage. And, you know, with the lyrical content, um, the wizardry thing and all that Rainbow Demons things, it, it captured people's imagination. So it really took off in that regard. And then, of course, you had the big single, Easy Living, off it. But Return to Fantasy, of course, we, 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 we got on board um, John Wetton. It was a very strong musical force, too. But we wanted to forge ahead with, with um, a bit of fantasy. So that's why it's called Return to Fantasy. And, um, and we wanted to just, you know, go hell for leather and prove that we were still a viable 
you know, banned in every sense of the word. So um, everyone was totally um, sort of in tune with each other, I think, musically in every every way. And um, and so I think that's that's how it came out as such a strong album. And yes, he did have chart success, which is marvellous, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think we just by getting the new blood in with John Wetton, there was an impetus to just keep you know keep proving ourselves, and, and I think we did that very well. Yeah, I think you did too. Um, now you mentioned, of course, chart success. How important was it for the band to have chart success? Was that something that you always sought after, or management said, "Hey, you've got to," or was it like, "Meh, we just do what we do, and if somebody likes it and buys it, good for them." Basically, that <laughs> your last comment. <laughs> Um, to be honest, you know, um, we were never a band that looked for singles. We always recorded a good album, and if there was a single on it, then that's fair play. Um, and that's just how we looked at it, you know. Um, the only important thing was that whatever we um, achieved or wrote, you know, it, it, just to be proud of it at the end of the day. And, and that, was our, that was our only goal. Um, the commercial end of it, of selling it and getting it on radio and the rest of it, was, was really not down to us at all. Yeah, it really wasn't. Uh, over we certainly the... didn't. We didn't pamper towards it either. I have to say, <laughs> right? You know, it's there are certain bands that are that are single driven, but Uriah Heep is career driven. I think it's not a singles band, which is why you're still here fifty years later. Quite frankly, um, let me quickly talk about uh, David Byron. Of course, uh, passed away years ago. Uh, Talk to me about him as a person and also his vocal style, because there was something very, very unique about how he approached a song and how he delivered a song. Um, just if you can, uh, remember David for me for, for a bit. Sure. I mean, David was a very charismatic guy. You know, he had charisma coming out of every orifice. <laughs> you know, I always said that um, if you filled up the Albert Hall... Um, and he came in at one of the many entrances you can get into that venue. You knew, you knew which one he was in, you know, because he's that sort of guy. Uh, he, he made that sort of impact. But it's, talking of his, his, his vocals, I mean, I've never actually worked with a vocalist that lived inside a song. There's no way I can describe it. He, he wasn't just a vehicle for the song. He didn't just sing it. He lived inside it. And I think that delivery is why so many people communicate with his, his vocals and think he's you know, um, as, as fantastic as he should be um, revered. He, he was just a great guy, you know. He really he lost his way, of course, as we all know, um, mm -hmm. through success. But um, up to that point, I mean, you know, David and I were best of friends. We were in semi-pro bands, our first professional band, our first recording contract uh, with United Artists and stuff like that. You know, it was just it was an amazing growth you know and, and when we went to the marquee club i remember doing that driving up when his dad's fork called tina and there was a queue right around the block that went for miles and we we phoned up our agent and said look guys uh we think we've got the wrong date you know there's there's loads of people here and all the rest of it and, the, and our agent said well congratulations you've you've you, you've got the record um ticket sales for the marquee <laughs> And it was for us, and we just hugged each other and went, wow, it's really happening, you know. So it was many, many lovely moments like that with David, you know. Even back in the old days when we used to try and run from the police and try and put up the posters and glue them up on, on shop windows, uh, you know, to let people know where we were playing and stuff, you know. There's, there's many, many great moments. But he was a great guy, great guy, and, and a very unique vocalist in as much as, as I've said before, and I can never reiterate it anymore, he just lived inside each song. And that delivery communicated with so many people worldwide. 
Now, of course, you mentioned that David lost his way. You, however, have never sort of lost your way. You've always been there. Um, talk to me about being in a band for, for, for that long. And, and were there ever moments where you just wanted to walk away and say, Ugh, I've, I've had enough with this business and these people and these promoters and this? And Were there moments where it just wasn't fun for you? Well, only, only in as much as the business sense, you know, where you get ripped off for for lots and lots of money. I mean, that's that's the really sad side of the business. But I always had the ability to think, well, I'm still doing something I love. I can still make a living. I'll keep on doing it because, you know, what better place to be? Um, so I always had that side of me, whereas others, um, past members, you know, hold that grudge for life and it never leaves them and almost ruins their life, you know. Uh, but I was never one of those people. So I've never never actually thought of moving away from the business at all. Um, but, you know, back in the 70s, I don't think there's any band, any of the big bands or the small bands that didn't get ripped off, you know, because that was the state of the business. <laughs> you know, it's, it's how you were, you know. I think somebody wrote, I, don't, I think it was Ian Hunter, he says, you know, what do you do? You sign the contract, well, you know, you're going to be ripped off or you're going to go back stocking shelves in the supermarket, you know, what do you do? <laughs> Well, in fact, the contract, you know. <laughs> well, so, so let me quickly talk to you about that because I was actually having a, a a chat with Frank Marino from Mahogany Rush the other day. Uh, not an interview. He was just we were just in the in, in a room together, and he was talking yep. to me about how he doesn't own any of his songs. He doesn't own any of his music. He's trying to put out a DVD this year, and he had to go beg all the different record companies and people yeah. <laughs> to have permission to release his. And, and that struck me as very unfair and is that when you look back at look at yourself and salisbury and very heavy very humble and, and and that did you ever sign one of those contracts that are that it was so obnoxiously bad that you don't own that music or you you, you know do, when did you sort of wise up to the business aspect of it if you want um i think because you know i think yes you're absolutely right yeah we did sign those contracts you know and we got ripped off um and what you were told never actually happened, you know. It's one of those deals, you know, you, know, you, you you had no... I mean, the thing is, when you get to that situation that you're talking about there, you know, when you, when you think, well, OK, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attack these guys and try and get back my songs, you haven't got the money to fight them. You can't pay those lawyers' fees, <laughs> you know, and you end up with, you know, mortgaging your house and everything else or losing your house just trying to fight for what's rightfully yours. So um, my my position on that is that um, I think BMG own most of our back catalogue now. So I'm actually working with them closely on what they release and everything else and just trying to have a, a hands on it. So at least everything is done with quality and not just thrown out there. <clears throat> but, you know, um, as I say, not like, not like you do once you sign that piece of paper. And I... it is, it's unjust, it's unfair, you were never given advice you know, and if, if if in those days, if somebody said to you, go and get some advice for a lawyer before you sign that, well, who would you go to? You had no idea. You, you had, had no, no you, you, couldn't, you couldn't even afford to go there, you know. You're getting £20 a week. <laughs> right, and I'm sure if the record company saw you coming with your lawyer, they'd say, well, pff, you're not getting a deal from us. Go go away. Yeah, yeah, you'll be, you'll be thrown out the door, yeah. So Are, they had you, you had you over the barrel, but, you know, we can't complain about that. We're, we're still here, we're still surviving, we're still made a living, so... Uh, thank the rule for that, I reckon. <laughs> so, so let me ask you this, and, and then we'll we'll end on this. I, is there a particular album or time period that you look back on that you 
that was so distasteful that you don't want to play those songs anymore or you don't? And then conversely, is there a period of time where you went, you know what, we were treated really nice and whatever, you know, conquest or head first and go, yeah, man, we really were, you know, do you have that memory of just, it was so distasteful that you just can't get past it. And then one that was so great that you go, man, it should be like this every time. You mean album wise? Yeah, album wise and business wise, where, where was you know was like 1973 to 1975. So we're like, ugh, I just don't want to revisit high and well, mighty. It, it, well, in those days, you see, you were so immersed in what you were doing. You know, you had success around the world. It was growing and growing. Um, the, the, I have to say it to our, to our management at the time. I think Jerry Bron, his name was. He um, he invested lots of money in us in the early days um, to get us to have the success we had. And then they want their money back. But, you know, in doing so, they, you, you're nine months on the road, three months in the studio, nine months on the road, three months in the studio. You never had time to think, you know, and um, that was the sad part of it. And that's when all the other um, nasty parts of the business came into play to keep yourself going, you know, because you were driven so hard. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, can't, I can never look back on anything and say, mm. Um, and it was a breeze, and I think what I mean, Demons and Wizards was a pretty much of a breeze because we were all at that time, um, all the jealousies and royalty arguments and songwriting arguments, and all the rest of it hadn't really come to to uh, the fore at that time. But the easiest album I think I have recorded was Living the Dream. It was an absolute dream to record. We had such a great time. We didn't put any pressure on ourselves. We recorded it in 19 days. We had another two weeks put by to record, which we didn't need. And, you know, Jay Rustin came in and became part of the team very quickly. We we, we recorded very quickly. You know, we, we went in the studio after breakfast at 10. Um, we had stopped for lunch and stopped for a bit of dinner. And after dinner, we worked to about 10 o'clock at night. And then it was um, into the pool room, break open a few beers, and open a, bo- a bottle of wine, and, and, and the Uriah Youth Club started <laughs> around the pool table. You know, it was very, very easy. Um, if it was all like that, it'd be marvellous, you know. But, hey, to say that on your 25th album is quite something, isn't it? It really is. And you could see that. I, I saw the little sort of teaser clip on the Pledge Music page for the album, and it, it was just... Uh, well, I don't, want to, I don't want to sound disparaging, but it was, it was sort of goofy and light, and, and it was fun. And it just oh, seemed yeah, like... Oh, we, yeah, right? we always liked that. And it just seemed... And, and okay, so let, let you, you did mention the 19 days. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll finish on that for, for real this time. But, you know, so many bands take a year, two years, sometimes even more to make an album. Whereas you look back in the early days of Black Sabbath, and all, everything was done in 12 days. Um, is there a point where it's too long and you overthink stuff i mean is it better sometimes to, to do it in 19 days and if there's a mistake or whatever aren't sometimes those mistakes part of the charm of a song and and should you be so surgical totally. right totally you're totally right yeah I, I i i think you can overthink things you know and and um you can chase rainbows you know go around around in circles and end up where you started um very much so. i think thinking on your feet sometimes is the best way to do it you know, I think that's that's the best you know, the best way to come through because you know you're doing everything for the right reasons. You're doing it with your heart and, and the, the feeling that it is the right move. You haven't got time to think. Well, is it? Isn't it? You know, you know, all that humming and ah and just gets you nowhere. 
Yeah. So yeah, we're very much a band like that. But we do 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 our groundwork. You know, we had two weeks in pre-production to knock the songs in place and sent them over to Jay. Then he came over for the 1990s, and all we had to do was really get a great version of each song and then put all the um, overdubs and vocals on, the solos, etc. Yeah, and it came out. Great. Jay had a unique way of working. He he. The first, the first producer I've ever known that we, we 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 work up a song in the studio. We're happy with the arrangement. Press a record button. Two or three takes, we've got it, and then we'll work on that song. We're used to doing all the backing tracks, and then the following two weeks come in and do the rest of it. But he did it. Once you've recorded a song, we'll go in. We'll put the solos on. We're doing the overdub bits, which is really cool. Cause you're really fresh. You're really on it. And then we have a bit of dinner. Then Bernie will put the vocal on. We'll go and do some harmonies. And virtually the track's almost finished in that one day, which is a great way of working. It really, it really is. worked for us because you, you're working on the impetus of each song as well, so you get the best out of all of it. But taking you back back again, if you don't mind, if I take you back to the worst times um, of recording an album, which probably be Different World, uh, a song of ours that we uh, sorry, an album we recorded, because what happens? We we joined it. We had a record company, I think it was called PRT, which was a huge conglomerate record company. But then they, they amalgamated and went bust while we were recording. So that whole, I mean, it's a big building in London with its own studios and everything. They all went down to one guy, one telephone, one desk, and one parking space. <laughs> and along with that went all the finances that we were promised to make the album. So that was a very, very difficult album for us to, to make. Yeah, so the different world would be the one that was a, a real struggle. And I'm really proud of the band for coming out with anything, with all the turmoil that was going on around it. And in the middle of that, we gave the production duties to Trevor Boulder, our bass player. And in the middle of that, he decided to get married in the middle of the making of the album. So he went away for two weeks, got married, came back. We got other producers come in and take his place. And then he didn't like what they did, so we had to redo it all again. <laughs> So that was probably a damn point. <laughs> yeah, and, and of course, back in in nineteen ninety ninety one, you didn't have you didn't have that luxury to to screw around on an album because because of the changing times and the changing musical taste, you you needed to give your best so that the album came out the best. So, so on top yeah, of being yes. right, on top of screwing around with the album, you couldn't deliver to the market a subpar rock album because. Rock was already sort of waning at that point, so that's right. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. Um, well, there mm. you go. And uh, I'll just say this: hopefully, on the next album, you will use a J again because the the results on "Living the Dream" are absolutely phenomenal. I mean, just such a pleasant, pleasant album to listen to, and and you can just get into it from the from the get go on that first track. Great um, stuff. Yeah, just well done. And uh, there you go. And hopefully well, I've, I've, I'm on record as saying that I'd use Jay in a heartbeat for the next album, so uh, there's a good chance that'll happen. <laughs> good. Let's 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 go with that, and hopefully we'll see you here in Montreal, and even better yet, if we can convince Ace and others to to make it with Black yeah, Star. Happy Riders. days, mate. You'd have the happy days. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. And I would have one person in the audience, and it'll be you, right? <laughs> Absolutely, I'd be there. Listen, like I said, I saw you. Uh, what was it? January. It was just, it was spectacular. I mean, it, it no, was spectacular. Much, the the entire audience sold out. By the way, sold out, just yeah. on their feet from the first note uh, to the last note. That, that there was no lull. There was no. Uh, it was just yeah, all the way through for whatever it was, hour and a half, two hours, and uh, hey, 
<laughs> I was well, impressed. Well, those those Canadian fans gave us a buzz too. Let me tell you, um, we didn't expect to get um, the responses we did out out in Canada because we haven't been there for years, as you as you well know. And um, it was just amazing. It's it's something we want to repeat very quickly. Yeah, and you should. And uh, Nick, thank you so so much. And uh, thank you, my friend. And folks listening, uh, living the dream is out in early September. Pick it up and uh, do yourself a favor. And there you go. Thank yeah, you, sir. 14th of September. <laughs> yes, there you go. Thank you. Happy days, mate. Thank you. Cheers bye now. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye, mate. Bye-bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And a very big thank you to Mick Box of Uriah Heap. The new album, of course, is Living the Dream. It is out in September, and I do suggest that you track it down and give it a, give it a spin because it's actually very much worth it. And now... Moving over to Doro Pesh, a lady that I first met backstage at a Ronnie James Dio concert in, my lord, uh, 2000, 2001, I guess it was. Uh, Absolutely, absolutely charming. When uh, my wife's father passed away from prostate cancer, she donated a song to a Kiss tribute album that I was doing called A World with Heroes. And so just always, always a pleasure to talk to her. Her new album is called Forever Warriors Forever United. It has over 20 songs, including White Snakes, Don't Break My Heart Again, and of course, joining me on the phone from the band Red Rain, it is Sammy Lee. Do head over to Twitter and check them out at Red Rain Band. That is R E D R E I G N Band on Twitter. Sammy, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah, so. Quickly on Doro, were are you a a Doro fan per se, or or is that a band that 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 sort of you missed growing up? Where, where do you sort of fall on the you know Warlock Doro side of things? Well, obviously, I've heard <clears throat> some of the songs uh, from Doro and Warlock, and I like them. It, it I probably missed the boat a little bit on that, um, but. I mean, the woman can sing. Let's not let's not kid ourselves. I mean, she can she can carry a tune. So, uh, believe it or not, I'm I'm actually looking forward to uh, to hearing the, the new uh, the new album out. So, uh, yeah. I will I will get that and listen to it. Yeah, it really is. And of course, uh, on here she's got some special guests, including Doug Aldrich, who used to be in White Snake, and she covers right. "Don't Break My Heart Again." Now, you know, you, you're you're a fan of that sort of. Uh, 80s hard rock or the 70s hard rock with, like you said, Van Halen stuff. White Snake has got to be in your wheelhouse, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, as a drummer, I mean, not not only the band itself, but my God, Tommy Aldridge, you can't miss that that freight train. <laughs> yeah, isn't isn't he the greatest? Uh, so oh now you know. Normally, you'd think of Still in the Night or, or one of those songs to cover. Here I go again, but they they went with Don't Break My Heart Again. Um, do you have any connection to that song? Is that a song that you go, you go, oh yeah, that's one of those hidden gems, isn't it? Well, you know, that's the great thing about Whitesnake is they got a lot of hidden gems, you know? Um, obviously, you know, the, the, the main songs like you just mentioned are great, but yeah, I mean, Whitesnake doesn't miss, I mean, when they swing the bat, they don't miss much. And so you can almost cover 10 songs that aren't um, radio songs and never miss so yeah she picked a good one that's a good one to play that really is a good one and of course uh, white snake later this year have a acoustic box set coming out which i'm very very much looking forward to uh, off the top of my head if i remember it's like five cds of 
all acoustic white snake from over the years when and that is just going to be absolutely stunning and then of course in 2019 they have a brand brand new album um you of great course band. have yeah great band. what a great band and and let's remind the folks that red rain has a new album a new ep called red rain um just quickly talk to me about putting that album together were these songs that you've had sitting around since the beginning of the band's inception you know but going back to 2013 2014 or when you came into this ep you went hey you know what we're going to make an ep and we need five or six songs let's get cracking no so what we did is we did a full-length album here uh we're from richmond virginia so we did a full-length album produced by ourselves um and not to go to too much into the timeline, but w- once we hooked up with our publicist, uh, we had moved on. He had sort of set the, you know, uh, set the timeline for us to meet a gentleman named David Ivory, who has worked with Hailstorm. And um, we got with David. David picked four to five songs off the original CD that we did, which is called Chasing Shadows. And we reworked them, uh, dropped some parts, added some parts. Uh, David made the songs flow so much better than we than we could have. So that's where those songs came from, and uh, it's um, the first album was really really well done. We thought, but boy, did he he put the he put these five songs in a complete different atmosphere. Yeah, and we couldn't have been happier. Completely recontextualized them, and of course, when you yep. when you're working with a producer like David Ivory, who's done Hailstorm, who's done Silver Tide. Uh, you're not dealing with a rookie. I mean, he, he's he's working with those bands because he knows what he's doing. Yeah, he, and you know the great thing about David was when we walked in, I was nervous. I was like, "Oh my God!" You know, this guy. I mean, I, you know, he's uh, he's won a Grammy. You know, and it's like, okay, what what do you tell this guy? But the great thing about David was he was so easygoing, and he didn't change. He didn't change what we were doing. He didn't change the song, saying, "Hey, that song stinks. We're going to do this." He kept the integrity of the song, which was awesome. And then he added his flair to it and the pieces. And that's really what was awesome. He, he, he didn't come in and demand this, this, and this. He worked with us. And I'm telling you what, um, it, was, it was the best feeling in the world. Because, you know, you walk into a guy's studio like that, it's intimidating. And within the first two hours, I, I felt at ease. So it was awesome. Yeah, I can imagine. And, of course, uh, just before we, uh, we head over to Doro, let me remind you that when it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to the short list of qualified candidates fast. With Indeed, post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, and then zero in on qualified candidates. And when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free when you sign up at indeed.com slash podcast. That is indeed.com slash podcast. In fact, let me repeat that. That is indeed.com slash podcast. And of course, terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. And with that, here is the one, the only, one of my favorites, Doro. We are speaking with singer Doro Pesh. The new album is called Forever Warriors, Forever United. And uh, Doro, first of all, just an absolute pleasure to talk to you. We've done these interviews for, what, going back 20 years now, I think. Yes. And, yeah. and it's just, I'm so happy to talk to you again. It was oh, always so great. So always great a great fun, time. Yeah. yeah and, and of course, we know you've done that album years ago with Gene Simmons and Tommy Theron. So we yeah. talked about that before. So I'm going to try to get some different stuff today. And but, but let me focus on this Forever Warriors, Forever United. I mean, here you are in 2018. 
and you're putting out a double album. Two, uh, you know, so let me start with that. Explain, you, you know, were these sort of two separate albums recorded at two separate times and you thought, let me just put them together as one package? Or were they all written for this package and it's just a double yes. disc because it's a double disc? Explain sort of the whole creative process because I saw that some of the songs go back a couple of years to, to a 2016 and go yeah. for it. Yeah, we actually, we started, it was around two and a half years ago, and I had some songs floating around before we recorded a couple of songs. We did one video, and it was um, the song Love's Gone to Hell, and, you know, but I wasn't really ready for a new album, for a new production, and then something, you know, so heartbreaking happened. That was actually when Lemmy left us, and um, and that was kind of like a, a, a total shock to me. And and such a wake up call. I went. Um, I wanted to go to his birthday party, and my mom she got really sick. She was in the hospital, and then I told my friends I I can't go. And and I dropped him a little text message. And usually Lemmy was always texting back right away. And you know we had such a great friendship going. So he didn't you know write me a text back. And I thought, man, you know somehow I was worried. I seen him a couple of weeks before that, and he was very thin. And, you know, and, and, you know, you could really tell, you know, he was not doing so well. So a couple of days later, I heard that Lemmy left us and I thought, oh, no. And then I went to the funeral. I was on the plane. Mickey D was on the plane. And it was like we were all like, you know, like totally heartbroken. And and then I was sitting there and suddenly this idea for a song for Lemmy just came out and the song is called Living Life to the Fullest and you know melodies, lyrics, everything was there and I thought, oh man, I wanna I wanna do it for Lemmy and yeah and then couple of days later I went into the studio and recorded it and with the same guy we did uh, the last um, duet uh, together. It was called It uh, Still Hurts. That was the duet with Lemmy. Yeah, and the guy, his name is Andreas Brun. He's the ex-guitar player of Sisters of Mercy. He knows me very well. We worked together since 1996. Yeah, and I told him the song is very, very important to me. I want to say thank you and give thanks and honor Lemmy. Yeah, and then we started. And believe it or not, but it all started with that song. And then we gave it our all because it was so important to me to, to do something what maybe Lemmy would love. And, you know, and then we started and writing more and more songs, recording. And somehow I had the feeling, yeah, man, I'm ready. I want to do another record. I want to, you know, do the best I can because I felt, yeah, you don't know when it's over. You don't know if the world is still standing in one year or if you're still, you know, like if you're still alive. So, yeah, and then I had many, many, many songs. And then two years later, we had about 40, 45 songs. And then I thought, oh, man, I love so many songs. And I called our record company, which is Nuclear Blast. And I asked them if I can do a double album. And I said, wow, in this day and age, some people, they just do one or two songs. And you want to do a double album? I said, yes, man, I definitely feel it. I want to do it. Yeah. And then, you know, eventually they gave me a phone call and they said, okay, do it. And I thought, oh, man, I'm so glad. So I could put all like these different things on it, like stuff which is very very, you know, personal or is important to me. Or I did uh, two cover versions. One is a Motorhead classic. It's lost in the ozone with 
great lyrics, Lemmy yeah. was such an awesome lyricist. Yeah, and then some other, you know, great, yeah, a little bit well, out of the box things. Well, you did, you did one of my favorite songs as well. You did "Don't Break My Heart Again" because yeah, yeah. You, listen, like in my top favorite bands here, you've got the Scorpions, you've got White Snake. So, so when you're doing, you know, if you cover "Rock You Like a Hurricane," you cover a White Snake song. I'm all about it. So, so talk to me quickly about that song, and, and I do want to get back to Motorhead and Lemmy, but but talk yeah. to me about that one. Why not "Still of the Heart"? Was um, "Still of the Night"? Why not one of the big ones? Don't break my heart again. Is sort of a lesser known track, but you, the, your version right. is fantastic. Yeah, but- Mitch, I tell you, I love it. I love the song so much. I love all the other songs, but I love that song. And Whitesnake was my very first concert I uh, went to. It was in 1980. And David Coverdale and Whitesnake was this legendary lineup. Boy, God, it was so mind-blowing. It was so awesome. And my first band, um, our Bite. name was Snakebite. Exactly. Right. Which, you know, like, of course, we had to, you know, see Whitesnake. And we, we weren't a cover band. We were all original you know doing original stuff but our band's name was snake by then then you know of course the connection to white snake and and it was so unbelievable david cowell it was such a god man he was such a great front person and singer yeah and i always loved that song don't break my heart again so when i found out that we could do a double album then i thought yeah i want to put some songs on which are you know which made me you know like like fall in love with rock and metal and yeah and if it would be just a normal album with 10 12 songs you know i would have probably not put on cover versions but in this case i thought yeah man i want to you know i want to definitely tell the fans you know what we grew up with and what influenced us and stuff and and what i love you know certain things i just i just love you know yeah and how can you not love uh, David Coverdale. So uh, I'm going to branch out, like, you know, like like a spiderweb here. But you also have Doug Aldrich, who, of course, spent time in White Snake and spent time yeah, next to David Coverdale and Dio yeah. and stuff. So, so talk yeah. to me about some of these guests because you, you've you've assembled quite a cast. I mean, you've got people from Amon Amarth. You've got um, uh, um, what's his name, uh, Warrell Dale. Miller. Yeah, Warren. Uh, 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 Dale. Great friend of mine. I did a tour with him in 1998. It was our first big tour in America with Megadeth, Sanctuary and Warlock. And we became great friends. And we always, you know, seen each other every year, maybe once or twice on festivals. One time he flew over. I think he took a trip. It was 50 hours, like he changed planes three times to, to to be a guest on our anniversary show. It was like years ago, but I always thought, man, you know, he was he was doing that just to sing one song. And, you know, so we had a great relationship. And I met him last year in Wacken because I was a guest on the show of Amona Mars, which I love so much. And I did one song on their last album. It was a duet. It was called A Dream That Cannot Be. And we became great friends. I think Johan Heck is a great great front person as well. So I was in Wacken and on another festival, it's called Summer Breeze. And I had just to do this one song and it was awesome. And because I didn't do my own show, I, I could walk around, talk to everybody. I felt totally like, you know, no pressure, you know, just like hanging out. And then I had this uh, little demo and the song was called All for Metal. And then I asked some people if they want to sing on it. And I had a little video camera and I had a little, little portable studio. And the first guy, you know, I saw was actually um, it was um, 
Jeff Waters. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff Waters. Jeff, yeah, Jeff Waters. Waters. Neither, neither. Right, from Canadian he boy actually, on top of that. Yes, you got to love that. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And he came to our 30th anniversary. He came to New York and we are great friends as well. So I asked Jeff, hey, you want to check it out? And then, you know, he was singing on it and you know, he said, oh, I love it. And next door, it was actually Dane. The dressing room next door was Dane. And then we talked and he was doing really good. And I said, what are you doing? He said, yeah, I'm doing new songs. He looked great, you know, in good shape. And then, you know, I asked him if he wants to be a part of this uh, all for metal thing. Yeah. And then I went to everybody and all my friends, people I grew up with and, and the guys of Sabaton from Sweden and Russ, the boss of X Men of War and, and everybody's yeah, singing on and Valdane. It meant so much to me because that was the last time that I've seen him. And um, yeah. And man, I tell you, so many people, they go and it's like, it is, it is totally heartbreaking and, yeah, so I'm, it is. I'm so, so, glad so let me bring us back to the beginning then. Let, sorry to cut you off, but let me bring us back to the beginning because, you, you know, we lost Worrell, we lost Lemmy, uh, and, and we've, we lost Aretha Franklin recently. Do you start taking stock in your own career and singing and start thinking like, hey, this could be my last album, so I need to make it something special? Are you having those moments of reflection or is that no not yet i'm not i'm not ready to think like that just yet yeah actually i i it's sometimes it's it's hard to not think about that because you know the world is in so much turmoil everything is so you know so different you 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 know you don't know you know this constant change sometimes it's not for for the best and yeah sometimes i think man i want to do it now you never know you never know um, yeah, and then with all my friends just leaving, like the first time that I was totally so shocked, it was uh, Ronnie James Dio. I couldn't speak for two weeks, and I know everybody was so shocked. That was the first time that our whole world was like, you know, like, 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 like shaking. And um, I feel, yeah, I want to do it now. You never know. And yeah, I want to do it for the rest of my life. I hope I have another 35 years in me. But yeah, you never know. And um, yeah, and somehow I, I take it more serious than, you know, than whatever, 10 years ago. Yeah, somehow I feel, you know, and I think it's more and more important, you know, to, to stay positive to have a good attitude to to fight the good fight that's what the record is all about and to and to click with other great you know musicians and you know like with good people and and we talked before about um uh, Doug Aldrich, man, he's another so great guitar player. I'm so happy, so proud that he's playing on this uh, song Heartbroken. And man, you know, what a talent and, and such a great guy, you know, such a sweetheart. So, yeah, so somehow I, I feel it's it's utmost important to you know, to connect or reconnect. Well, okay, let me ask you about reconnecting because you, you did the Triumph and Agony 30th anniversary yes. tour. And of course, we have Tommy Bolin on there and you even have... Yeah. Uh, um, Tommy Henriksen that came out and, and I did I think did a guest spot with you last year but but Tommy is on this new album um, uh, Tommy Bolin I should say yeah, yeah. Uh, talk to me about reconnecting because that's the word you just used talk to me about reconnecting with a guy who was on you know arguably one of your most successful if not arguably mo one of your most important albums and then having yeah. him come back and be on this album and 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 do some shows with you and and just what's it like to reconnect with Tommy and 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 his guitar playing and his style and just 
you know, everything. It is so awesome because, you know, when um, it, it was never our our choice that we wouldn't play together anymore. And in the 80s, it was a different different time. Like the agency, the management, the producer, the record company, everybody had so much power. So sometimes the band, you know, um, it was sometimes not our decision. So we were so happy to play together again. And Tom is a great guy. He has qualities, which I rarely have seen. He's so much energy is such a powerhouse he's a little bit wired you know immediately when he goes on stage you know like all his strings you know he rips he's sweating bleeding on the floor but it's so awesome i love it yeah and i called him one and a half years ago actually one journalist you know was telling me that the triumph and agony album is like you know almost 30 years ago and i thought really he said are you celebrating and i thought man hey that's a good idea so i called tommy bowen and said tommy it's doro hey, shall we do something special and shall we play the triumph and agony album in its entirety and he said oh man that would be so awesome so we did a couple of shows at first we, we thought maybe some club gigs but then the first show we did um doing this triumph and agony it was sweden rock and i tell you it's the biggest festival in europe like next to Bakken. it has like 60 80,000 people so that was the first time that we were playing together again we did some good rehearsals but it was still, it was so man we were so excited but it went over great and then the next festival was actually in Norway, Norway Rock. And then we got along so great and we were jamming in our hotel room five o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock we had to leave to get a plane. And, you know, and then this um, idea if I can't have you, no one will came out. And I thought, oh man, Tommy, I love it. I think this could be maybe a good follow-up duet with Johan Heck. So I called Johan Heck of a monomath and I said, Johan, have another song, you know, check it out. And then Johan was writing the lyrics for the verses and that's how it came about. And it all came about because Tommy and me were yeah, jamming together and playing together. And, and by the way, uh, Tommy Henriksen, he didn't join us. He called me one time. He said, Doro, I'm here. You know, he's in um, the band of Alice Cooper. And, you know, and he said, Alice Cooper's in town. He would like to see you. And it was my only day off. I was on tour nonstop and I had one day off. I was sick as a dog, tired. And Tommy said, come, you know, come and see the show. And I said, hey, Tommy, I can't. I'm so exhausted. Can't do it. One hour later, he called. He said, oh, you got to come. You got to sing with us. And I thought, oh, no. And then I, I went to the show and then we played um, and sang schools out together. And then I was playing with Tommy Hendrickson again and Alice Cooper and Nita Strauss, which is such a great guitar player. I love her. So, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. She, but she, she didn't fantastic. join our Warlock stuff yet. No, she is. But, but oh, okay. man. We got along great. Yeah. You, you know, Triumph and Agony, of course, ha celebrated 30 years last year. But, but yeah. there's another 30 years that's coming up. And, of course, it's Force Measure next year is going to be 30 years. But that also means oh. 30. 30 years of you solo. And you have said in the past that you never wanted to be a solo artist. No, you wanted to no, be in a band. No. But here you are. You're on the on the precipice of a 30-year solo career. So, so first of all, talk to me about that, just the fact that you had to do this solo for 30 years. But also, now that it's there, are we looking forward to it next year with a force majeure 
uh, show or, or or some kind of celebration where you bring back some people like yeah. or is it like oh wait i didn't realize it was well man, i didn't realize Mitch, the same like what i told you before that another journalist you said sometimes i'm so you know like on tour festival studio I, I i didn't even think of that but that is a good idea and um yeah and with like the solo thing i never wanted that i never planned on it but we had one time trouble with our name Warlock. And now actually I put the Warlock name on the American edition. It says Doro of Warlock because, um, yeah, somebody who had nothing to, to do with the name, he, he took the name. So in 89, 88, 89, suddenly we got in trouble and I thought, no, we, it, it's still Warlock. It's still our name. It's our band. But then, you know, we got in trouble and I thought, okay, we will sort it out. So one record we, you know, have the Doro logo on because everybody said that's maybe the easiest thing that um, that fans would reconnect with that. And, and I thought, okay, I don't want to do it, but okay, then if if it's necessary, let's do it. And then one year later, we called another record Warlock. But it took 20 years. I was fighting 20 years to yeah you know, to get the name Warlock back. And I tell you. I never thought, you know, that it's so unfair, but the music business is sometimes the music business. And there are not only people, you know, in it to, you know, for for, for the music. They are, you know, for other reasons in that business. And, yeah, I learned it the hard way. So you, that's you the reason why I was called Doro. I never wanted that. I, no, no. But then it was the, yeah, it was so, the thing to do. We had to do so, yeah. Well, since we're talking anniversaries and, and learning things sort of the hard way, let, let me let me take you back here just momentarily to this album called Love Me in Black, which is celebrating oh, 20 years yeah. this year. 20 years now, 1998. Um, that one was a bit of a, of a, 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 what do you want to call it, a mess? Not not that the songs were bad, but but... The, the contract with Polygram Vertigo was a mess, and, and then you, you they didn't want to release it in the States. Um, taking yeah, that... Actually, I was yeah. on, on Warner Brothers. We changed, and uh, I had this album. I think it's one of our best albums. I think the production, the songs, I think it's so cool. I love it, especially the title song, Love Me in Black. It's, it's one of the most loved songs by the fans and you know the diehard fans they always get every album you know through import I know it's sinfully expensive but everybody loves the Love Me in Black album and especially that song and yeah when we were doing it I worked on it uh, three years in America actually in LA and in New York and then you know and then some somebody said well you know if you want to call it Love Me in Black you have to change your style you shouldn't wear leather anymore you should change your image and like you know and and if you call it Love Me in Black then cut your hair and dye it black and I thought what cutting my hair I thought no man I'm not a fashion clown I don't want to do that and you know and then it got to that point that they wouldn't release the record because it was like not you know, it was not the mainstream kind of stuff. I wouldn't want to change my style because I thought, no, man, you know, for the fans, I I, I love the way, you know, I, I, I have my hair, the look. I, I love leather. Now it's actually not anymore real leather. I prefer fake leather because of the animals I love so much. But, you know, they wanted to change. And sometimes when you're in a 
major record company, you know, they really put pressure on you, you know, to do this and this or to change the sound. We had it many times. So, so I said, no, I, I don't want to change my style at all. And yeah. And then therefore the record didn't come out in America. I was hard broken too, but there was nothing, you know, we could do. And then the next record calling the wild, that was actually the first American release again in 2000. And it has, you know, had a great tour with Ronnie James Dio. It was one of my favorite touring experiences, but it was a tough time in the nineties, mid nineties when grunge was so huge. Then, you know, for, yeah, for a normal metal band, rock band, it was tough, man. It was tough to survive. And yeah, even though we did all the records in America, but uh, some of them, they just didn't come out and yeah but we had great fans a diehard fan club and this guy tony canella he was a diehard supporter he said man you know everybody's so sad that all these records are not coming out he said can i do something for you and i said tony just do whatever you think you know and follow your heart you don't need any permission no management just go for it in between two weeks we had four record deals on the table. And I thought, wow, you know, nobody could do it. Not our manager, not the lawyer, the fan club. And that was how I got my first record deal in the 80s and on our first album, Burning the Witches. It was exactly the same. The fan club people got us the deal. And, you know, and I thought, yeah, man, to me, it's all... It's all about the fans. I really mean that. I live it for the last 35 years and, and I owe it all to the fans, to the diehards. And yeah, and that's the story of the Love Me in Black record. But yeah, but but it still it found its way. I think the diehard fans they all know all these songs and yeah, and I think it's a very cool record. It, it is a cool record. And, and I mean it, it got caught up in, in in the politics of it all. And by the way, that Yeah, that, yeah. That calling the wild tour. If I'm not mistaken, that is the first time I met you. It was uh, Dio and you guys at the at Roseland Inge. in Ingvay Homsi yeah. at the Roseland Ballroom. And I've got yes. a picture of you and Bruce Kulik backstage that I took from Kit. Oh, he, he was there. <laughs> and, and, and I remember that. That was, that must have been November of 2000 or something like that. And Yes, this, yes. And I think, man, it was such a great atmosphere. The fans were crazy. It was so awesome. And yeah, I remember that well. And and being on tour with Ronnie James Dio and, and Ingve, it was, oh, it was such a great tour. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, just trying I to think. Was right, Doug Aldrich yeah. with with Dio at that time? I can't remember. No, no, huh? no. It was uh, Greg Goldie. Greg oh, Goldie. right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, but, but yeah. Isn't it strange though, as you start looking back at, at the discography? Triumph and Agony is 31 years. Force Majeure is coming up to yeah. 30 years. Uh, Love Man. Me in Black is 20 years. It's like, yeah, time flies. To... Eh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, totally, totally. But yeah, to me, it felt like maybe four or five years ago. But yeah, it's like, yeah. You know. <laughs> you, you've been at this a while. So, so okay, so so the new album is out. And of course, there are shows yeah. coming up. There are, there are some yes. dates coming up with Saxon, by the way. What a phenomenal bill that's going to be. And, and uh, Wayward yeah. Sons, I think, is also going to be on that. Yeah, um, that's right. What is sort of the plans moving forward? Because you, you, you did 25 songs. You said you had up to 40. Is it just it's out and we'll tour and tour and tour until to yeah. 2020? <laughs> Yes, yes, probably. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I definitely want to tour like nonstop and tour all over America and Canada and South America and and just as we speak, P 
people are working like on yeah gigs and touring stuff so yeah so so the first gig is actually coming up soon and it's the Prague Power Festival which I'm so excited we will play some new songs probably all for metal and bastardos and um, yeah and then on our tour I want to let the fans decide which songs they want to hear because 25 songs I love them all I can't make up my mind so I probably want to do a little poll and the Everybody, you know, yeah, tells us which songs they like the most, and yeah, and then we will play every night a different show as well, like you know, and they can call out, you know, the songs they want to hear, call out, you know, encores, and yeah, and I'm very excited. And of course, we play all, you know, our highlights like Oh We Are and I Rule the Ruins and Burning the Witches and Hellbound and all these, yeah, all these classics, of course, and yeah, well, and I'm of gonna, course, some songs I'm going to shout out too. only you. That's what I want. Oh, here. You, yeah, I just want to say, I just wanted to say that, of course, some songs, you know, Jensen's produced. I, I've just seen him a couple of weeks ago, and actually we played one song together. It was a great festival in the Czech Republic. It's called Masses of Rock, and it's another really awesome festival. And then Gene Simmons played there, and then we did one song together. It's War Machine, and I tell you, it was such a big honor, and you know, and meeting Gene again, and hanging out, and talking, and then, and then I got invited to uh, be a guest on The Vault and it was in Frankfurt, Germany and you know and it was so cool and you know we had a great time. I love Gene and I learned so much you know from him and you know I tell you he was you know he was one of our greatest producers of all time definitely and Tommy he was the co-producer and yeah and he played you know great guitar solos and yeah it was an unforgettable time and me being a big Kiss fan you can imagine it was so unreal, you know. I still can't believe it sometimes, but you know. See, see, that can be your so next special. album. You can do an entire Kiss tribute album. That would be great. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a, a, a Kiss totally. White, Kiss White Snake, uh, Scorpions uh, tribute <laughs> album would be perfect. Um, yeah. I, I do want to ask you uh, sort of a question out of left field. Right now, of course, uh, Guns N' Roses has been on the road for for two years, three years, and not on Lifetime tour. Their current drummer, Frank Ferrer, he toured yeah. with you, right? Yeah, yeah, he was our drummer in 1995, and man, he was a fantastic drummer, and I'm so happy for him. You know that he's now in Guns N' Roses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all, you know, all our, you know, band members, they, you know, they play now in great bands like. Tommy Hendrickson and Alice Cooper and the Hollywood Vampires and yeah, Frank Farrah and Guns N' Roses. I guess, you know, that's, wow, that's a dream. And yeah, yeah, he was a great guy, you know, like had so much power, such a good feel. And, you know, and he was the nicest guy as well. You know, that's like, yeah. <laughs> and of course, don't forget John Levin over with Doc. And they're, they're, they're... Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah, John, yeah, yeah, and he's a lawyer, so if you ever get in trouble, you know, you can call him, and yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, he's a fine guitar player, and like, yeah, I was really blessed, you know, to play with so many great people, and usually we all, you know, yeah, we are all still friends, and you know, and then you go on tour together or play a festival together, and ah, it's like, you know, it's it's awesome, yeah. <laughs> And, and you know, for, for next year, I'm going to do my, my darnest to try to get you on this festival we have in Montreal called Heavy Montreal because – Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, I, I think it would be so great. And 
and and I, I mean no disrespect to the to the uh, festival, but they seem to have underrepresented female singers and, and bands that are female fronted, but also just a great band because Dora was not just a female front. It's just a great band. Yeah, but, yeah. I never felt like you know, like I thought, man, I'm just one of the guys. You know, I do my best. I'm a metalhead. You know, I love metal. I love to sing. Uh, to me, it was never like you know. I, yeah, but yeah. I thought it doesn't make much difference, you know, whatever you are, you know, as long as you have, you know, the heart in the right place and, you know, love music and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, I think life, yeah, we, we do good life thing. I think all the records, they couldn't even compare with, like, life, you know, stuff. Like, even we just played Bakken, which is such an awesome festival here. And, yeah, man, life is, like, you know, there's a different level. And because of the fans, I can always perform and sing much better when, you know, when I see, like, the fans. That's, like, you know, that gets me, yeah, it's it's different. In the studio, it's cool, it's great, but... But there's nothing like, you know, when the fans are into it, like, oh, man. Yeah. And, 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 and we want to do a live record maybe of uh, Triumph and Agony because I think that's such a great record. Every song is really is great craftsmanship. I think great melodies, great meaning. So I definitely plan on doing yeah, a live album of Triumph and Agony maybe next year. Yeah, maybe we we'll well, squeeze see, that in. As, as you celebrate the, the 30th anniversary of Force Majeure, you should do a couple of those shows and then do a double album with one yeah. <laughs> one disc is the triumph and agony and call it you know 30 years of door or something like that but uh it just just absolutely and always a pleasure to talk to you and and the band with Great johnny and you. nick yeah you know they've been with you what 20 years now minimum yeah 28 years nick and uh, 25 years johnny d in our band and it was always fantastic we're best of friends they're great players they're great guys and you know they have great energy and i yeah and i deeply appreciate them and that they were you know with me like through the good times and not so good times you know they were always there like and you know we we have a we are a good team, really good team. Right, and 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 even though we we refer to you in the media as a solo artist, you really aren't because it, it has no, been it's been no, a band. Yeah. It's been a band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just yeah, the change, um, yeah, the the name, and then yeah. But um, I tell you, I was, you know, I couldn't believe it, but. That was actually, yeah, we had to do it, you know, we got in deep trouble. And, but now I use the name Warlock again, you know, maybe I call it Doro Pesh of Warlock to not, you know, to not, not get even close to trouble. But yeah, but the Warlock name I'm now allowed to, to use again. And, but it's now so many years later, you know, I don't know if the young fans, you know, you know, even know what what kind of records or what band it was. So the older fans, they probably really remember, oh, yeah, and all that great stuff. But, yeah, so, you know, when yeah. you're 14, 15, maybe you don't know, like, the whole history. But, well, yeah, but here and there, I want to, you know, I want to definitely use the name and then, you know, have Tommy, you know, you know, doing his, you know, wild, you know, guitar. Like, he's, like, you know, he's, he's really something. This is great to watch. And now on Prague Power, we have actually Tommy, Tommy Bowen and Chris Caffrey playing. And this will be really wild because Bas Mars and our other guitar player, Luca Ponciotta, great guy from Italy. We don't get 
the work visas in time. It takes minimum three months. And we just got the call a couple of weeks ago. So we will have Tommy and Chris and it will be a special show, you know, lots of shredding and solos and, you know, and and, and I will sing as well. So, yeah. Yeah. And and that'll be special for the fans. So, of course, uh, the new album Forever Warriors, Forever United is uh, out now. And yeah. it is 25 brand new songs. And I, I, by the way, I love yes. the description in the, in the press release. It says, it is a musical firecracker from stadium anthems to ballads, from heavy metal to classical. And uh, oh. you know what? It sounds cool. great. It, what a great description, yeah, right? I didn't read it yet. Yeah, that's good. That's good. A musical yeah, yeah. firecracker. That, that's the best description <laughs> and uh, probably a good album title too. But uh, Doro, always, yeah. always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, nice talking to you, Mitch. Thank you for having me on your show. And I wish everybody the best and hope to see everybody live and, you know, keep on rocking, stay yep. metal yep. and fight the good fight. No? <laughs> yep. and, uh, and I'll say this. I know it's it's sometimes uh, difficult to get over to North America because of all the work visas and the this and the cost and all. But we need to have Dora over here. There, there needs to be yeah. a run and, and hopefully yeah. it'll happen. Yeah, for me it's no problem. I got uh, the green card 28 years ago, and you know, I'm, you know. So, but yeah, for the rest of the band, sometimes here and there we have to tweak it, but we will always, you know, give it 180 percent. Always try our best, but yeah. But now, you know, it's probably a very special show with Tommy and Chris Caffrey, and, and actually Chris, he played a couple of America tours with me, so so I'm, I'm very excited, and yeah, yeah. It's great. Thank you. <laughs> and the Thank rest you. of the guys, they're there in spirit, and of course. You know, they are, right. you know, they are, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but great. And Doro, thank you so much. It's always, like I thank said, always you. a pleasure. Thank you. Same here. And see you hopefully very soon. And yes. all the best to you. And yeah, and stay metal then. <laughs> always metal. Uh, and, and we'll do this <laughs> yeah. again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Have a good one. Yep. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And a big thank you to uh, Doro Pesh, of course. The new album is called Forever Warriors, Forever United. It is out now. Do yourself a favor. Check that out. Uh, Sammy, welcome back. Always here. Still here. Thanks still for here. me again. Yes. And uh, I will well, let me direct the folks to your uh, Facebook. It is facebook.com slash redrainband. And, of course, rain is R-E-I-G-N. And, um, you know, we, we are going to have Eddie Trunk on in the last part, but uh, you are, sir, a drummer. And, of course, like we said before, a big Van Halen fan. Mm-hmm. I have always said, when it comes to shows, that I just don't like drum solos. I don't like guitar solos. And people on my Facebook, and other, they're always on me, oh, drum solo. And it's not so much that I don't like the talent and I don't appreciate the talent and I don't appreciate the players. I mean, obviously, Tommy Aldridge and Alex Van Halen. and Okay, they're great. But when you have a band like Van Halen or Kiss or Whitesnake that have 20, 30, 40 years of back catalog, I would rather hear one extra song, two extra song, three extra songs. And so let me ask you, as a drummer in Red Rain, what's your sort of point of view on drum solos? Are you like, yeah, man, I got to have one in here and tapity tap, tap, tap. Or are you like me? Like, well, there's a pee break. Too bad. We're not hearing another song. I, um, I am like you. I like watching, uh, I, I used to like watching the great drummers, uh, drum. solo. I do not drum solo. 
uh, I'm I'm sort of with you. Is if there's time for a song, play the song. Uh, I think that's what people want to hear. I, I do think people, as great as these musicians are, and there's some great ones that I think you sort of tune out a little bit. You know, after after two to three minutes of somebody banging on the drums, it does get a little old. <laughs> and I don't mean it to does. It does. anybody's feelings, but. Um, it gets old when I mean I used to do drum solo a couple years ago. It got old just doing it. So I'd rather play a song. Yeah, you see, and and folks always say to me, "Yeah, well, Mitch, you don't understand. There's a pacing in a show. The singer needs a break, and the the guitarist needs to go downstairs and and take a pee." And the and it's like, yeah, I understand that that there's spaces in a show where there has to be a wardrobe change or there needs to be a break for the vocalist, but. There are other ways to do it. I mean, if it's not a solo, then then get everybody to do a jam together. At least that has some kind of musical property to it, whereas just tappity-tap-tap, or, or again, wankity-wank-wank on the guitar, uh, you know, and... You know, let's face it, you look at a band like Kiss and they go, well, we can't play a song like Charisma because uh, uh, only the diehards know it, casual fans don't. And I'm like, well... Do you think a casual fan would rather hear Tappity Tap Tap or would right, a casual right. fan rather hear a song like Charisma and maybe perhaps like it, right? I mean, well, I, I agree. I think you play some of the old stuff for some of the newer fans to, you know, who might not have heard that back catalog. I'm with, I'm with you, you know. Uh, I, I would rather hear Charisma than, than, a, than a Gene Simmons bass solo. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, absolutely. And and that's how you get them to start not being just a casual fan. And and let's face it, nobody in their right mind sees a show go on sale and say, oh, Van Halen's coming to, uh, you know, Charleston, $150 and go, oh, man, I can't wait to see the solos. They're like, no, man, I can't wait to hear Jump. I can't wait to hear Panama. I mean, that's nobody's paying 150 bucks with the hope of getting a drum solo. I, I agree. But on a, on a side note, I, I believe that since Eddie is probably one of the greatest guitar players of all times, I think people do want to see him solo. I, I would almost put an asterisk beside that one. I think some of your your okay, great maybe. players. I think some of your great players like uh, Neil Neil Peart or or you know some of those. There are some exceptions, but I think mainly for bands. And listen, I, I'm not I'm not putting anybody down. I mean, you know, everybody has their show, but. Uh, but I, I agree with you. I think there I think there are some exceptions to that because because of Eddie of who he is and and what he can do to a guitar. I think some people do wait for that solo. Well, perhaps. But yeah. uh, going back to Kiss real quick, <laughs> with, yeah. with the exception perhaps of Ace Frehley, I don't think anybody else forked out, you know, twenty, thirty, fifty, hundred bucks to see any of the other guys solo, and and they don't wait with bated breath for you know anyway. Uh, right. but, uh, without, without, and, and plus, for... I'm sorry, not, not to cut you off me, but I also think a little bit, again, for me personally, it kind of cuts the flow of the show too. You're rocking, you're rocking, you're rocking, and then it stops it, the flow a little bit by, by doing a solo. That's my opinion. It's, it's like dropping an elephant in the ocean. It just, it just <laughs> right. it's awful. Um, uh, but speaking of Eddie, uh, the next guest of course is Eddie Trunk. He has been exceptionally, exceptionally successful over the years has been a voice for rock and a lot of these bands that we're talking about, whether it's the Kiss or the Van Halens or, you know, even the Warrants and the Quiet Riots, a lot of them probably wouldn't have their place right now if it hadn't been for guys like Eddie, who has been 
carrying the flag. He never ran off and became, you know, a grunge aficionado or a pop guy. He has stayed tried and true to rock the entire way through. And uh, here we go. The one, the only, Eddie Trunk. We are speaking with radio personality Eddie Trunk. Eddie, absolute pleasure to speak with you. We, we've done a couple of these in the past. And, uh, you know, thank you. Thank you for being for being here today. Well, thank you, Mitch. Appreciate you having me. Good to talk to you. Yeah, so, you know, I wanted to, to ask you over the years about your career, and I want to talk about some of the bands. You know, there, there's stuff coming up with Kiss and, and UFO and, and Steve Perry. But, um, you know, the, the one thing I hear when, when you do a radio show like this, and I hear from fans all the time, it's, oh, it's easy to do that. Anybody can pick up a mic and anybody can do this. And, you know, as somebody who's 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 tried doing this myself, that's not the case. So, so let me start with that. What has sort of been your key to success? What is it that keeps people listening now 35 years to you? Um, you know, what is sort of your magic? Well, I started, as you, uh, as you correctly stated, 35 years ago, right out of high school. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was, about, I was 18 years old. And for me, the uh, obviously there was nothing there was no such thing as a podcast at that time or anything like that for me the whole reason for doing and getting involved in the music industry was because i was a fan and i was when i was in high school i was often made fun of for the music that i liked i was goofed on for it i was somewhat of an outcast for for what i liked it was very not very much not cool at the time and uh what i liked was hard rock music and I just wanted to find ways. I, I never set out. My goal was never to set out to be on the radio, to be on TV, to do any of that stuff. My goal was to try to find ways to take music that I loved and share it with other people. And that's all it was about. So when I was young, I started working in a record store. Okay, there's a way I can sell music to people and suggest music when they came in. I always wanted to do radio, but not to be on the radio so much and to be known for it, but to be able to take those records and play them for people. Again, another way I can share music with people. Um, I started working for a record company in 86. Okay, now I can sign bands. I can spread music that way. I worked for a management company. Okay, now I can manage some bands and I can help bands develop their career. One of the earliest things I did was some writing, some freelance journalism. So point being is I did all these different things and the driver the entire time was all these multi-faceted things, but all in music, all to share music with other people and be able to have platforms to share the music that I loved with others. So that's what it's always been about. And I think when people ask me why I've been able to do all these things and do it for 35 years is I think I've stayed the course I've never compromised what I thought. I never really cared what people thought of my, um, you know, my feelings about bands. I'm open. I'm honest. That's, that's actually, believe it or not, unbelievably rare to be, to be frank. I mean, people are so used to hearing everybody tell you that every record is the greatest record and not ask the tough question and not push the envelope a little bit. And I think that I've been able to do that in a, in a mostly respectful way. So I think being, you know, at my core, I tell people all the time, I'm a fan. I don't consider myself a journalist. I don't consider myself anything but a fan that has been lucky enough to uh, build a pretty sizable audience through TV and radio 
to by being faithful and and generally supportive across the board of the music that I love, but also willing to call something out if I see it that I don't think works for me or that or let my audience have uh, a voice. And that's something that is really important to me. I love the two-way street. I love the debate, the dialogue. You like this. I don't like that. All that stuff is really important. I love doing that stuff. And I think being consistent uh, has and, and being able to uh, provide those platforms for the audience has really been a, a big part of it. It really has been. Now, ha- was there any training involved? I mean, you, you didn't do journalism school, did you? No. No. And if, if somebody is wanting to get into it today, then what is sort of the best advice? Oh. Right? I mean, is, is it go to journalism school? Is it stay away? No. <laughs> no. I'll tell you what. I mean, it was – for me, I was horrible in school. I only went, I didn't go to college. I went to a county college for like three months and I knew I wasn't going to be into it. And I was not good in school. I was, and, and by, for me, school was high school. And I graduated high school and all that. But my parents knew that my passion was music. My parents knew that uh, I, it wasn't that I was dumb. I certain, everyone knew I wasn't dumb. They knew that I just had, I just was kind of possessed with my love of rock music. And anything that I, anything that had rock was rock music related. I excelled at anything that didn't have my interest like that. I was horrible at, and was just happy to pass it. Uh, I even had a history teacher in high school who actually part time wrote um, a music column in the local newspaper. So I immediately befriended him and I did well with him because he was a, he spoke the language and, and that was one of my teachers at the time. So no, I, I didn't, I didn't do, it's interesting because I was, I have been, you know, I've written two books and I was one of the very first things I did was write. I wrote a bunch of reviews and some stuff and I don't have any training or education in writing at all. I still don't think I'm a good writer. I just am able to put my thoughts down and that's it. But I've always been able to communicate well. I've not been afraid to publicly speak. Um, I, I, I like talking to people. I like that sort of stuff. So I think a lot of that, just, just inherently, there was a certain sort of personality and a certain communication skill that I had uh, that, that served me well. But as far as uh, any formal training, no. I mean, I made my first demo tape for radio. My first radio show, which is regarded one of the, as one of the first metal shows ever in history, in America at least, was in 1983. And uh, I made my demo tape for that show on a friend's pirate bootleg radio station in his basement, meaning a radio station that didn't really exist. And I made this demo and that's how I started in radio. So I always found ways to just prove to people that I could do it without having any real proper training and, and no history. And when you ask me, the thing I'm probably best known for, Mitch, I mean, beyond that metal show and all the stuff I did in TV and the things I do now is is radio, because that's what I've done consistently from 1983 till now. I still do, I do six live radio shows a week for Sirius XM. I do a syndicated FM terrestrial radio show on 30 cities in America, and I do a podcast every week. So that's eight broadcasts a week on the radio side. And then all the other stuff fills in the blanks as far as, um, you know, TV. I'm currently doing a TV show here in the U.S. I did that metal show for years. So all the other stuff is great, hosting stuff and all that. But radio is what I'm asked about probably the most because I've just done it consistently for 35 years. And for, for me, when people ask me, how do you start in that now? I don't know what to tell them 
because radio used to be the answer to that question used to be you go to a small market, you work on the overnights, you, you find a way to get in and you work the midnight to five shift in Boise, Idaho. You try to work your way up from there. And guess what? Overnight shifts don't exist anymore because they are now handled by a computer. So unfortunately, all the uh, opportunities that existed, and now not just overnight shifts, but now in most medium to small market radio stations, almost every shift is pre-recorded and run by a computer, which is essentially an iPod, except for maybe morning drive. And if you're trying to start in radio, usually you're not going to start in morning drive. So it's really, really difficult. And the other big problem is, is that, yes, you have podcasts and you have these other platforms where you could kind of show your, your skills a little bit. The downside of that is literally anybody can do that. There's no gatekeeper to do that. So as a result, you're dealing with a very, very crowded, congested, convoluted space where, you know, sure you can do it, but is anybody listening? Does anybody care? And can you get enough of a, a foothold there and make enough of a mark to expand your career beyond that? So it's a really, really difficult thing. And I don't, well, young people ask me all the time how to start. And, you know, I can give them some ideas, but it's, it's very, very difficult because the whole business model has changed so dramatically. And there's pros and cons to it, of course. But I, I just think it's really, really difficult because the, I, I tell people all the time, the good news is, Anybody can go on YouTube, anybody can do a podcast, anybody can do this or that. The bad news is the same thing. Anybody can do it. <laughs> so to separate yourself from the pack and stand out is really, really difficult. And I have the advantage of having started so early and done it so consistently that, um, you know, I just building a, a core audience is invaluable. And that's that's really what what it's about. Yeah. And, and it really is sort of similar to what's going on in the music business in the sense that there is so totally. much out there with, with YouTube and stuff. Um, you did mention that you stayed the course and, and you have stayed the course uh, promoting rock for 35 years. And I think a lot of the bands out there that are still doing it, whether you were talking about Warrants or the Great Whites and all, partly have you to thank for having stuck true to yourself. Why didn't you at some point say, hey, man, I could make more money being a, you know, hip hop DJ or I can make more money being. Why did you say stay true to rock and metal and not go, you know what? There's a better opportunity at that radio station doing, you know, Giants games or why stay true to rock? I, well, the only other the only other thing I really loved besides rock was you know some sports, but I'm not I'm not enough of a sports guy, and I don't know sports well enough, like that I could talk about every team and every sport and every player. I I would you know to know to to be able to really do sports talk, you you need to really really be into the into that. I could do that on the teams that I like, but I couldn't do it across the board on teams that I don't like. So I, I, even though I've dabbled in some sports broadcasting here and there, very little, I never really did it. But really, it goes back to what I said at the top. I mean, I, di I didn't start this to be a broadcaster. I started it to promote and share my love of the music. So it would have been pointless because the whole thing was about, you know, about having ways to promote the bands that I love. So I never thought of doing it for any other reason. And I could never, even though, even though doing pop radio or top 40 or 
or hip hop or whatever would be would have been way easier path as that stuff started to emerge. It, it just would it would have been it would have been hard for me. It would have been like it would have been something that I would have then felt like a job. It would have felt not not anything close to why I'm doing it. There's the word I hear a lot from people about what I do every day on whatever platforms I do it on is passion. And that's, I appreciate that because that is sincere. That's really like I did this. I went on this huge thing yesterday on my, on my radio show on Sirius XM about the video music awards and Aerosmith's performance on that. And I, you know, went on this huge uh, rant for like an hour on the air and people thought it was amazing and they thought it was really entertaining and they got a kick out of it. They're like, how do you, you know, where does that come from? And I'm like, it just, it wasn't pre-planned. I didn't write it out. It's just how I feel. So wearing it on my sleeve like that has been really important. It's what's really made, uh, helped get me this audience and this connection to this audience. And it's, it's something I truly, you know, as goofy as it sounds, it is in my DNA. I don't know any other way. I I couldn't fake it with other bands. Now that being said, like I'm currently doing a TV show right now for a, a channel here in the U S called access TV. And it's a, it's a, a travel show going to music festivals and I'm covering every genre of music festival. So in this show, I mean, I've interviewed Rob Zombie and Tom Morello and all these guys that I know in my comfort zone, but I've also interviewed Charlie Daniels and um, I've interviewed Kim Wilson from the fabulous Thunderbirds. I've interviewed other guys, other genres of music, but still kind of in the rock space. And I've really enjoyed that. I love getting outside of my wheelhouse a little bit and interviewing people that I don't know and a, a little different. Uh, so I, I have massive respect for that. But to get way outside of rock and to be able to, I mean, I can talk to anybody and I'm willing to talk to anybody, but I, I'm, I'm at my core a rock guy and I don't apologize for it. I think rock needs all the help it can get right now. And I'm happy to be that guy to kind of wave that flag. So that's what it's about. But for me, I'll tell you something else. You know, when I started in radio, the and it's still to this day, I don't know how many people know this. It amazes me how many people do not know this. But 95% of music radio that you hear, the DJ has absolutely nothing to do with what they play. And they have, most of the time, can't even say what they want to say because they have a 15-second window, and they, sometimes they're reading it right off a card, and that's it. So that's why it's so easy for some of them to be replaced by computers because it's completely formatted. So when I started in radio, that wasn't going to work for me because my whole reason for being on radio is to talk and tell people how I feel about these bands and to be able to play the bands. So when I first discovered that, I was like, no, 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 I'm not doing that. And uh, that was a huge, huge turning point in my career because I could have really gone the easier way meaning do the format, do what's pre-programmed. I would have better hours. I would have made more money, but that's not what I got into it for, you know, and that's not what, that was not where my interest was. So I needed to have that platform in that way that I could share the music and the experiences with other people. So I took a much harder path. I worked the late nights. I worked for less money. I worked because I wanted to develop my own thing. And that is one of the most important decisions I made in my career. To this day, people, less and less people have any control over what they play. Yeah, and you know, and you, you mentioned those key words, uh, develop your own path. And I think that's, that's one of the keys to success. When you look at bands like, like Kiss, for example, 
they did it their own way and they didn't follow some preconceived notion. Um, I do want to ask you a little bit about rock, but I want to also ask you about hosting because, you know, this summer I've gone out and hosted a couple of kiss parties and stuff. And it is exceptionally difficult. I found it's not just grab a mic and say a couple of things. Um, when you go into a situation like a rock cruise or a, a rock Lahoma or one of these places, what is sort of your mindset in terms of like, what do you have to convey to that live audience to, to keep them interested, to keep them, to keep the show moving? Is it just come up and sort of say, Hey everybody, here comes firehouse or how do you sort of prepare to host a, an event like that? I, I know, and I'm very cognizant of the fact that, when I do this stuff, it, look, when I, I do a, a variety of different things in terms of, um, and I'm lucky to have all these different, different opinions, uh, different uh, opportunities to, uh, to host things. And like you said, from cruises to festivals to what have you, and it, it's great, but every situation is different. And there, I also do a speaking show where I'll go into a club and I'll speak for over an hour, an hour and a half, just myself on stage. I've done a bunch of those. Each case is different. That, an event like that, that's about me. You know, that's, that is, they're there to see me and hear my stories and meet me. So that's a little bit of a different thing. When it comes to hosting a cruise or a festival, it's not about me. Sure it is. I mean, people are there. To, they, I have the gig because people know me and want to see me. I get that. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. But to me, it's about there. I'm working for that promoter. I'm working for that band. I'm working for whoever hired me. So my job is to get the message out that they need to be got, gotten out and get on and off the stage. And, and sometimes that's, you know, mentioning a sponsor. Sometimes that's just setting up the band and, letting them come out. Sometimes that's in festival situations, telling the audience if there's weather coming in or, um, yeah, I, I've been in a million situations. So there's different things, but generally I try, unless it's my event or it's something that people are there for, for me to, to see me as a speaking sort of engagement, I, I want to get on and off. I mean, I, I'm not under any illusions that people, people are waiting for the band to come on. So I want to just maybe say a word or two about, the band or my history with them or why I like them or what their latest record is or something like that and get on and get off. And, uh, that's, that's really, you know, what, what that's about. I'm about to go on tour with deep purple through Mexico in November and host their whole show, their whole tour over there. And I, the promoter that hired me to do that, you know, I didn't really, I had no idea what to expect. I didn't, I still don't know. I said, I don't speak Spanish and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to tell these people before Deep Purple plays. And in that context, he just said to me, look, he goes, these people all know you here. Your TV show was really big here. They just want to see you. Most of them will understand English. It's fine. So every situation calls for something different. But my rule is kind of like, unless it's my event and it's me doing a speaking engagement, clearly people are there for, for that. And I have to provide some a show, so to speak. But in other situations, it's more about... Um, tell me what you need me to do, meaning, you know, that's what I would say to the promoter of the band, and I'm going to get out of your way and let you do it. Yeah, and, and, and so that's that's something that, that I could certainly learn from, because it's, it's it's not as easy as just, hey, here's the mic, go go talk. Um, just before we run out of time, there, there's, there's some marking moments coming up this year and next year. Uh, you, of course, recently interviewed Steve Perry. Um, 
how important is that to the rock scene that Steve is back? Is it just sort of this blip on the radar and we'll just go back to saying that rock is dead? Or is this something that has a potential to be a turning point and go, ah, okay, moving? You know, how important is it that Steve came back? Well, to his fans, monumentally important. I mean, I'll tell you, that interview I did, he's, he since has done a bunch of interviews, but the interview I did was pretty much his first, certainly his first on a national radio platform. And that interview I did with Steve, which is about a week ago now, which is actually I'm going to put as my podcast tomorrow, um, that, that thing got more reaction than anything that I've done in a really long time. I was floored by the reaction to that. And both in the sense that people were so excited to hear Steve and also the reaction I got for the interview because people really loved it and thought it was one of the best interviews I've done in a really long time, which surprised me as well, given that um, I don't know Steve Perry. I'd never met him. I didn't know what to expect. Going into that interview, there were uh, some sort of loose conditions put on what I could and couldn't talk about, and I hate that. And I rarely will do interviews with any conditions because I, I just think it doesn't serve the audience. So um, I was really concerned about that one. I did not know how that was going to go off, and it ended up being universally loved on a lot of levels. So I, I'm very pleased about that, and he and I just hit it off. And I had a really, really great uh, experience. And I had, you know, I have an advantage that I'm aware of in the sense that I, since I've done this for so long and I've been, you know, people have just, they, they, they kind of, it's hard for me to talk like this because I, it, it makes me sound like some sort of, you know, jerk, but, or egomaniac, but it's not me. I'm just telling you what I, the advantage I have is the fact that, because I've done this so long and I've made a name and made a mark and people have seen me on TV and saw my TV shows or, or they just have huge history with me or they hear about these interviews I do. It's a huge advantage because these artists actually want to talk to me. Like Steve Perry walked in, I don't know him at all. And he was extremely excited to meet me, which was bizarre, but he had known and followed my career, which I had no idea about. So he sat down and he's like, I canceled all my other stuff today. This was the one I needed to do. And right there, that gives me a tremendous advantage because you're dealing with somebody who genuinely wants to be there. A lot of musicians don't want to do interviews. They don't want to do press, especially the more, the bigger guys. I just had Slash drop by my show the other day. I said, why didn't you do press at all for Guns N' Roses? So we didn't need to. Nobody, we had nothing to sell. Concert tickets are sold. There's no new music. Nobody wants to, nobody wants to do, take the time to do that stuff really, unless they have something to sell. So, um, it was just a tremendous advantage when these guys come in and they want to talk to you and they're like, man, I've been watching you or listening to you. And I'm like, really? You know, that's what I said to Steve Perry. I'm really me. And he's like, yeah. So that's one of the reasons why it went so well too. Cause he genuinely wanted to be there. He knew my history and uh, he was excited to talk to me. And as far as the answer to your question as to what it means, I don't, uh, again, I'm honest to a fault, Mitch. I mean, I don't think it means a whole heck of a lot, except for the fact that one of the great voices of all time is back and about to release a record. And it's, go it's making his fans extremely happy that the guy is doing something after 20 years. 
what 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 it means beyond that is really going to be up to Steve because I'm not convinced that he wants to fully fully go. I mean, I don't I don't know him well enough, but my my sense in the interview is that he's putting his toe in the water and releasing a record and putting the word out about the record. But he was non-committal about live shows. And you know, when you're on the sidelines for 20 years and you're 69 years old getting back into the music industry, you can find it, and I've seen this many times, you can find it to be very, very different than what you thought it was going to be. And it, some, for some people, they embrace it, and some people, they go back into hiding. So I don't know what's going to happen with him. He's been out there a lot now since the interview I did with him. He's done a bunch of interviews. He's really pushing this record. I think his fans are ecstatic that he's singing again and that they've chance to hear him and he's doing something. But above and beyond that, is it going to save rock music? Is it some sort of like major thing? No, I don't think so at all. And I think that people also have to realize and get past the whole, is he ever going to go back to Journey? Clearly, he's not. I mean, clearly that is not happening. So people just have to look at it as, okay, here's a guy approaching 70, great voice. He's about to release a new record. We have him back at least making a record. And then from there, anything else is gravy. But I don't think it's going to mean any sort of seismic impact on the status of rock. On the status of rock. And and as far as Journey goes, I would like to see a situation where they do something like with Foreigner, with Lou Graham, and, and have him come back and do a couple of songs with Arnell and, and just give the fans a taste. But I, I do agree that I don't see him moving forward. And, and I also don't think it would make much sense to to have him back on a permanent basis now uh, just my before... my thing my thing as I said I've said about that is that you know Journey are currently touring on 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 what is one of the biggest tours of the year like doing gargantuan business reunions happen by and large because bands need help they need they need to take it to the next level they need help now would now Steve Perry coming back to Journey would it mean would it mean more people? Would it mean a bigger tour? Of course it would. Of course it would mean uh, it would mean more. But is it, it Journey's already in stadiums right now? <laughs> so it's like, you know, yeah, people would love to see it. But I also and and look, I, Steve Perry was very. If you heard the interview, and and anybody that didn't, again, I'm going to put it as my podcast this week. But if you heard the interview, I asked him a very tough question, which I, uh, people were really impressed that I did, but again, I've got to go there. And I asked Steve, could you, could you sing like you sang in journey? Now there's no shame in being asked that the man is 70 or almost 70. I mean, nobody can do what they did at 30 at 70. So there's no shame in asking that question. And I did. And he said, Oh, he was very honest in his response. He said, I'd have to, I'd have to tune down and I don't know, you know, you don't, you, I mean, just like Lou Graham, I asked Lou, could you tour in foreigner at the level they tour now playing five nights a week, two hour shows or hour and a half shows? He goes, no, no way. Could I do that at my age now? So there's no shame in any of that. And that's another thing. Could he get up and sing a song or two at journey? Sure. Just like people ask me all the time about a kiss reunion. Peter Chris said to me, I couldn't go and play five nights a week at this point in my career. There's no shame in any of that. It's just like asking an athlete to come back and throw a touchdown at 70 like he did when he was 25. But, um, you know, there's only a few of those guys in that rarefied era that can at, at the advanced age. There's only 
very few Steven Tyler's and Glenn Hughes's of the world, but, and Sammy Hagar's, but outside of that, most of us are mere mortals and can't do that. Yeah, you're, you're right. And, and by the way, I did see uh, Def Leppard and Journey at Fenway Park uh, earlier in August, and just what a phenomenal, phenomenal show. And uh, now I know we're going to run out of time soon, so, so let me just quickly ask you, uh, Vinnie Vincent, he came back, you had a chance to interview him, I had a chance to interview him as well. Um, interesting that the way that he came back and then sort of dropped off the radar right away. I mean, what was sort of... Looking back at it now, like, you know, a few months later, he came out, what, January? So we're looking at almost September now. So eight months later, what is sort of your take on the great return of Vinnie Vincent? Should he have done more? Did he do just enough to get, you know? Uh, well, well, I don't I don't think we know yet because we really don't know where this is all going to land still. You're right in that he came out and did the signing and then sort of disappeared. And then he had a falling out with the promoter who brought him back. And now he's back working with that promoter again. He's done some signing shows. I mean, really, to this point, all he's really done is signing shows, paid signing shows. So we don't know. I mean, again, I, I said this earlier, and I really do mean this, and I see this all the time, Mitch. There are guys, musicians, and they sit out or take a, you know t- t- take a break from music and disappear for 10 15 20 years we're talking about with Steve Perry or Vinnie Vincent right i mean when they come back into the business and you know being honest again i mean some of these guys come back in the business because they've run out of money their royalties have dried up there's a lot of guys that were very comfortable being retired from the music industry because they got great royalty checks every three months. And now those royalty checks have dried up because music sales aren't what they used to be. So all of a sudden they're like, hell, I got to get back out on the road. I got to find a way to make some money. And then when they stick their head out and say, okay, what do you need to do? How do we do this? They find it's a radically different business than, that they, than what they left. Some, some for the better, some for the worse. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, you've got to navigate social media. Wait a minute, I've got to do this. Wait a minute, that's not done for me. Wait a minute, that's what records sell today. And it, it's, it, it stuns them. And they've got to process it. And they've got to figure out if they want to do it. I was kind of half joking with Steve Perry during my interview with him. I said, you know, Steve, there's this thing called the Internet now. And, and he, was, he was laughing because literally that day that he was on with me, he launched an Instagram, a Twitter, and a Facebook. He had never had one before. So he was just navigating all that. So I think with all of these guys, the similarity is if you sit out for a while and you're on the sideline for a while, you, you, gotta, it's, you really have to figure out if the business is still for you and it's something you still want to do. And, um, you know, I think that's where Vinny's probably at right now. I mean, he's got he's to sort through a lot of stuff. I mean, Mick Mars is dealing with it on a completely different level. I know Mick. Mick is. Uh, people have asked me a million times about Mick, and what, why isn't this record come out? And I've talked to him about it privately, and he said to me, he's taking a really long time to try to figure it out because in Mick's situation, sure he was in Motley Crue right till the end, but he's never been outside of the nest. He's never been on his own. He's never been a, an act where he's got to set up his own, his own uh, management, his own publishing, his own. 
uh, camp around him, find his own, find a record deal. I mean, all these things, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. That, that's, that can be a big adjustment for people. What direction? He's got a lot, of, a lot of people in your ear. So I think people like Vinny, people like Steve, people like Mick, for this, the reason I stated, they all have to deal with it for a different way. But what, what Vinny decides to do with this is really ultim, ultimately up to him. I mean, he's a talented guy, but he's a guy that you know a lot of people have very mixed feelings about and still have a lot of hard feelings about. And uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know where he's going to go with this and what his ultimate goals are, but um, it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, it really will be. And uh, we'll finish on this because I know you have to get going. But uh, we, we talked about new beginnings with Vinny and with Steve Perry. All indications are that as we move to 2019, the end is coming for UFO and the end is coming for for KISS. Um, you know, how, how do you sort of see it playing out? I'll start with KISS, but how do you sort of see it playing out for KISS moving forward into 2019? Uh, do they just do a quick farewell tour and say goodbye do they bring back everybody do do they do sort of like again like foreigner how do you see that you know is it time for them to to step away is it time for ufo to step away um you know because i was talking to mick box yesterday of uriah heap and he said i'm not stepping away there's no chance um where do you see it going for those two bands kissing ufo yeah, I, I think it's interesting, too, that, that you, I talk to people like that all the time. I mean, I'm going to have Klaus from Scorpions on my radio show today, Got a band that said that they were going to end seven years ago, and now they're back doing stuff. So it's it's interesting. you got these guys that say they're going to say say goodbye, and then the uh, these other guys are like, no, I'm just going to die on stage. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to ever stop. Um, I don't have a problem with artists performing for as long as they want, as long as they're still able to do it reasonably well. I do have a problem with what I call bands staying way too long at the party, meaning that you, you're asking yourself, why are they still doing it? The guy can't do it anymore. The guy's half what he was. There's five, there's one original member, if that. I do have a problem with that. I would much rather have bands that I love end respectfully with a great last memory than to drag it through the mud and be a shell of what they once were when they perform. So to that end... Anyone that's really followed me and knows my, my, my position, I think KISS should have ended when they said they were going to end, which was the farewell tour. I, I, I have not been a fan or follower of KISS since then. Uh, the last 15, 17 years, whatever it is, has been something that I choose as a lifelong KISS fan, which I still am, but I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a fan of and I, I, can't, I can't support it um, because for me, I loved every era of Kiss, but the line for me was drawn when they started dressing other guys as Ace and Peter. If they would have given those guys their own identities like they did to Eric and Vinny, fine. But I couldn't, I can't, I can't and will not look at someone dressed as Ace Frehley singing Shock Me with a smoking guitar. I will not. I cannot. And that's nothing against Tommy and it's nothing against Eric, who are fine musicians and I don't blame them for having the gig. But that, when that happened, that was it for me. So I go from farewell tour back as far as my love of Kiss. So I think that Kiss should have ended when they said it. And it's interesting, if you look at all, pull any press from Kiss on the farewell tour. And when they were asked by every journalist, why now, why are you ending? They consistently gave the same response. We don't want to stay too long. We don't want people to 
ask, why are you still doing it? We don't want people to say, remember when they were great. Well, now here we are, and every day I'm fielding calls on my radio show questioning Paul's voice, the energy level, who's in the – I mean, it's endless. So they've actually – exactly what they said they were doing the farewell tour for, they've, they've accomplished the opposite. And to me, it's unfortunate as a fan because um, I just think that, you know, I would love to have had a better final memory and not have to have heard these calls from people and wonder what's going on with Paul's voice and why is this like this and what. So, look, it is what it is. Now people wonder about the, the end, the end. <laughs> you know, is, is, this, is this, you know, we already had a farewell tour, but wait a minute, now there's going to be the real farewell tour. I mean, really, does anybody really believe that? I mean, I, I, I don't and can't. I mean, they, they, they're going to ultimately replace themselves. They, they've said that. That's not a secret. Really funny, Mitch, because when I said that a number of years ago, people thought it was me sort of dissing Kiss and taking a shot at them saying, well, Gene and Paul are just going to replace themselves. No, they're going to replace themselves. <laughs> I'm not making that up. They've said that. So, so the, the KISS thing is not going to end. How it ends for Gene and Paul is up to them, and I think that there's a lot of fans that have this romantic notion of the original band or they're going to bring back all surviving original members or ex-members. Look, would I love to see that? Yeah, it would be wonderful. But I don't see it happening at all. I think that they're going to, they're going to continue to find ways they're going to continue to do what they've been masterful at doing throughout their entire history. And that's making money. So they are, and, and, and again, you have to understand, I am an enormous kiss fan. So this is not me saying this in, in a derogatory sense. None of what I'm saying isn't things that they say themselves. Everybody knows Gene loves money. So they're going to continue to do what they have done among the many things they've done well, but one of them has been make money. And that will mean, if that means bringing back an ex-member for a song, if that means promoting a tour as the biggest tour in their history, regardless of whether they can physically do it still or not, they're going to find a way to do it. And then when that's done, they're going to replace themselves and tell you that that's the best version of KISS that ever existed with all four, four new young guys with them supervising it. So it's going to go on and on and on. And uh, how Gene and Paul ultimately leave the stage is up to them. But some would say they've stayed too long already. And uh, look, they don't. They they can do whatever they want. I mean, but I just I just for me as a fan, you gotta know when to say when. And when I'm getting more calls than ever about people saying like, you know, why are they still doing this? I mean, this sounds really bad. And what? I mean, you got a question like, what 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 are you doing to your legacy? So, segueing into UFO. Right. I would be a I would be a hypocrite if I sat here and told you I didn't think it was a good idea for UFO to end based on what I just said because I am firmly of the belief that bands should end before you, they, I, I I think bands can play for they should stay as long as they want Aerosmith a great example Steven Tyler 70 years old still incredible singer and frontman still wipes the floor with anybody. Aerosmith can keep playing as long as they want. It's the five original guys. They're, they're still sound great. They still are great. Nothing wrong with that. 
But in the case of UFO, when that was announced, when Phil announced that he was going to end it, there were a lot of people who know how much I love that band as well and said, oh, man, you must be heartbroken. Actually, I'm not. Yeah, it sucks that one of the bands that I love so much is going to be ending, but I'm not because it's the right call. The man is 70. He's been in the business 50 years. He still sings pretty darn good. Is he what he was when he was younger? No. Like I said before, nobody is. So I'm thrilled that he's ending because that's the way you should do it. You're done. You know you're going to run out of steam. You know you don't want to do it and can't do it at the level that you want anymore. So end respectfully. Tell the fans we're done. We're checking out. We're good. A few more shows as a thank you, and I'm sailing into the sunset. That's the way to do it, with some, in my opinion. You know who did it brilliantly was Rush. Yeah. Rush was Rush just Rush has eternally been classy and brilliant in the way they do things. And when they did that R40 tour, they didn't even play the farewell card, but they let everybody know in a, in their own way, hey, you really should see this because this is going to be it. And they played their career. And they played, they put a brilliant stage show together, brilliant the way they did it, going through their history, and then sailed off into the sunset. And, man, and you know, here's your DVD and, and live album to commemorate it. Thank you. Goodbye. And, I mean, that to me was just absolutely brilliant. They, you, you couldn't have done it better than the way they did it. So, you know, everybody's going to have their thoughts on this, and nobody's right or wrong. I can just say for bands that I love, I'd rather have them know when to call it than driving it into the ground. And you don't even know what it's no semblance of what you, it once was. And uh, so to that end, you know, I'm thrilled UFO is ending. I think it's a smart call by them. And uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what they do. Same deal. Question comes up about ex members. I mean, I'd love to just like if I, you know, Ace is a close personal friend of mine for many, many years. I know Ace would love to get up there with Kiss one more time. If that happens, I'd love to see it. I'm not. I mean, if Peter, who is a, a, a close friend for many, many years, love to see him get up and play a song or two. I'd love. I'm, I'm not saying I'm not a fan. I'd love to see all that stuff. I'm with everybody on it. But the viability of it and it actually happening beyond maybe at one show or a song. Personally, I don't. I don't know if it happens. I mean, I think there's probably very differing views, but but uh, as Ace always says to me, and has said publicly many times, ah, you know, it's all about the money. If they feel there's going to be enough money, I'm going to get the call. You know, <laughs> that's that's what Ace says. That's out of his mouth. So you know, like I said, they'll they'll figure it out. But I I, I think that the idea, if anyone thinks that Kiss is end is is ending anytime soon, I I don't think Kiss is ever going to end. And, and by the way, I think we can say the same thing for Foreigner. Foreigner has, under the radar, successfully transitioned into no original members and still doing shows. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've seen in the last two years, like five or six Foreigner shows. I know three of them. Mick wasn't even there at all. So, and, and I just saw one in Denver, and, and it was no original members. Foreigner, look, a lot of people have taken note, a note from what Foreigner has done with that, by the way. That, that, and I talked to Mick Jones about that. I mean, he, he, is, he didn't even realize it, that he's kind of set this message. But he, look, Mitch, if we're being honest, yes, who we wouldn't want to be able to sit home and 
and make a ton of money for doing nothing. <laughs> I mean, that's the ultimate goal for most people. And if you own the franchise and nobody really notices or cares if you are or are not there, then, and you're sitting there running it from home, everyone's taking a page out of that book. Everybody's going to try to do that. There's many examples of that. Even Ricky Medlock of Blackfoot has put a version of Blackfoot That's out right. with young kids that nobody's in. He's not even in it. It's his own band. So everyone is looking at that foreigner model and saying, hey, can I do this? The difference is, and I've said this many times, and I love foreigner, and this is not a knock on foreigner. This is just, again, the truth. Foreigner was a faceless band. Foreigner was built on great songs, not on star personalities, meaning Mick Jones and Lou Graham were not David Lee Roth or, and Eddie Van Halen, were not Mick and Keith, were not Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. They were not stars. They were not you know, hero personalities. They weren't people that had, everyone had shirts and posters up on the wall. That people knew Foreigner for the songs. Most people would be hard-pressed to tell you who was in Foreigner. So that's why I think Foreigner, more so than anyone else, has been able to, to pull this off because they weren't built on any big personalities and any big stars. But uh, the, the bands that are built on those big personalities and, and stars, they're, they're the ones that um, are going to have a much harder time doing that. And in the case of a band like Blackfoot, I mean, they just were never that big to be able to do that. So everyone's looking at, and here's, here's the bottom line too. If promoters will buy it, they will attempt to put it out there. So, you know, a lot of fans go to shows and I know this because I hear calls from people every day on my radio show about it. A lot of fans will go to shows and they have no idea who's in these bands now or whoever was, quite frankly. They see the logo. They know of the few hits. And they're going to go to an amphitheater in the summer with their friends and have some beers and go in and whatever it is it is. The ticket was 20 bucks to sit on the lawn. Oh, I kind of know. Oh, that's not John. Oh, John Fogarty's not in CCR. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just like, oh, oh, Mick Jones isn't in Foreigner. Well, what, what Mick Jones was who? The guitar player? Oh, right, okay. Well, they still sound good. Yeah, I know this song. I mean, that's, that's what a lot of this is about. And then you have, then you have the hardcore fans who are going to go no matter who's in it because they're so hardcore. And then you're going to have the people that are going to make their own decisions, whether it's something for them or not, and really know what's going on. But there's so many people that have no idea who's especially – my gosh, especially when we deal with the 80s bands, the 80s MTV era bands. I mean, yeah. we all know. I mean, most of those are one original member, if that. And people are going, you know, there's two great whites. There was two L.A. Guns for a while. I mean, there's all these multi, I mean, those bands need all the help they can get to begin with. And then when you splinter it and you don't know who's in the band on any given day, that doesn't help them at all either. So a lot of the, you know, some of the dysfunction that's out there plays into it as well. Yeah, and I, and I think uh, you're right with the nameless, faceless thing. I think a lot of those AOR bands, your REO Speedwagons and your Sticks and your Foreigners, they could go on for the next 30 years because I don't think anybody really knows who the faces were. And Yeah, I mean, Boston, I mean, Boston, I mean, yeah. Boston, I mean you know, does anybody know who's really in Boston now? No, but the, you're going to go here more than a feeling. You're going to be fine with it. I mean... There, there, there are things, there are bands that the name and the songs just transcend who's in the band. 
By the way, I'm not saying I agree with this, and I'm not saying it's right. I am a purist. I do care about who's in the band. I mean, Judas Priest, as much as it's, it's, it's just for awful reasons what's happened with Glenn, and, and I wish him nothing but the best, but to me, Judas Priest is, a, is tough without either guitar player that played on 90% of that material. It doesn't, of course, Richie's a phenomenal player and, and guy. And so, and whoever is filling in Andy Sneeper, whoever's on second guitar, but you know, when, when this happened with Glenn, people talked about, well, what are the, I guess this is going to mean the end. Didn't mean the end. They're, they're out now and they're talking about their next tour already. So, some of these guys just they're they're not going to know how or when or why to call it and some of them do and some of them just figure out ways to sort of reinvent themselves but i mean judas priest one of the ultimate two guitar bands of all time and people are going to go and they're they're fine they're fine hearing the set where almost 90 percent of the music played neither of the guitar players had anything to do with it so i mean if that's their that's and that's their prerogative, everyone's going to look at this. Look at ACDC. I mean, right? <laughs> the guy who sang on Back in Black is is dismissed one day. And granted, they bring in a superstar name like Axl Rose, but nobody even asked questions about that. And I thought it was brilliant what Joe Elliott said, because he was just like, "Wait a minute, <laughs> you know, we stuck by our drummer when he lost his arm." This, this guy gave you 30 plus years and the biggest record of your career. And he has a hearing issue and you're already replacing him. So if you think that was just about a hearing issue, well then, you know, I got a bridge to sell you, but I mean, it's like, you know, so everyone has to look at this. This, this is a business. The, 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 the music I've talked about this so many times. The second word is often forgotten music business and in business, if you can find a way to make it work, and there's a promoter that, that's going to buy the logo and put it on an ad mat with five other bands, and you can card out, and whoever owns the name can card out some version of that band, nobody's going to let any of these bands end. The band, promoters buy logos. Fans buy tickets to logos. They'll, they ask the questions about, some ask the questions who is or isn't in it after the fact. But essentially, it's, it's buying logos, which is why the real wars in the music industry behind the scenes are over who owns the name. Yeah, that's, and, why, that, that's why name ownership is so enormously huge as a hot-button issue amongst bands, because whoever owns the name has the ability to basically trade on that name forever, whether they're in it or not. Yeah, and, and I talk a lot about on my show about brands. And, and fans go crazy. It's not a brand. It's a band. It's like, well, no, it really is a brand. And like you said, if you own the brand, you can just make money and hand over fist forever and ever and ever. Um, there you go. That's anyway, exactly what it's about. That's exactly what it's about. And here and real quick here. Here's what's funny about the whole kiss thing. Right. When I was a kid, I was made fun of for liking kiss because everyone would tell me it's a manufactured band. It's a brand. It's not even a real band. Uh, that was the knock on kiss for decades by all their detractors. It's a brand. It's not real. It doesn't matter who's in it. It, it. They're not, you know, it's not about the musicians. It's a brand. It's this thing that's been created. So that was the number one offense you could throw at somebody. If you were a kiss fan growing up in the seventies, 
in the early 80s. Now, <laughs> think about this. Now, that's what the band themselves is selling you. Now, they're, they're, they're telling you, you know what? All those critics all those years were right. We are a brand. We are replacing ourselves. It doesn't matter who the spaceman or the cat is. <laughs> so think about that. That blows my mind as a KISS fan. It's just like, wait a minute. The KISS army fought against that. That's what all the people said to take down KISS. Now they're actually saying that is what it is? Okay. Well, yeah, and Bring you know, the replacements for Gene and Paul, but <laughs> it's just crazy. The, the way I look at it as a Kiss fan all these years later is that we really were sold just anything. Because if you look at the 80s albums with Jean Beauvoir and, and Alan Schwartz, uh, Schwartzberg and, 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 and all the, you know, Anton Figo, well, there really wasn't ever a, a real Kiss. Maybe up until Love Gun, there was a real Kiss or Rock Love and Roll Gun Over. Back. Basically, and then, Love Gun Back, yeah. Right. And then after that, we were sold. Essentially, forty different music. I mean, we can go on. Steve Ferrone, and uh, we we could do this for the next ten minutes. List all these guys that have played on Kiss albums. And you go, huh? They really weren't a band, and they haven't been since uh, what seventy eight? Not eight, 77? seventy seven. Really, Love Gun. Yeah, last yeah. two tour was the last thing. Yeah, but yeah, no, and it's true. And it, and again, I don't mean to make it all about Kiss, but I mean they're they're a band that I absolutely love and and have. Um, you know, I can I can honestly say supported the hell out of through every incarnation except for what they do now. As I said, I, I'm not a fan, but I mean, 80s everything. I mean, I could talk Kiss forever, and again, I'll always be a fan. But if you really think about it, I don't know if there's any been a band in history that has utilized more smoke and mirrors than they have. <laughs> With who's actually on the records? Is the record really live? Oh. Somebody's pictures on the cover played drums, but they didn't play drums. I mean, you go on and on and on, uh, right down through Psycho Circus. I mean, everything is just like it was, there's a lot of uh, misdirection in their history. So it, it unfortunately, as we found out, and, and I don't know about you, but I mean, hell, I got in fights with people in high school about Kiss because these accusations hurled at them, and now all of a sudden we're finding out, yeah, you know what, that's kind of how it is. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter who's in the band. Anybody can be the spaceman. Really? I thought it was all about Ace. <laughs> and I had the same fights, and, and, you know, and, and don't even get me started on Psycho Circus. I mean, that, that successful reunion tour, and you're thinking, I want those four guys in the studio, and they sold it to you as four guys in the studio. And I don't know about you, but I remember putting it on, the first time going, that sort of sounds like Ace, but that's not Ace. You, you know, he has a very distinctive way of bending those. And he went, and then I went, there's no way that's Peter. I mean, I didn't even question whether that was Peter or not. I, I sort of questioned whether that was Ace or not because Tommy sort of had me fooled, but you heard the drumming. You went, that ain't Peter Chris. There, there's no way that's Peter Chris. And well, yeah, it's just like if you, <laughs> it's just like when you heard Dynasty and Unmasked, you're like, yeah. that's not Peter Chris. I mean, yeah. So, so I mean, it goes on, you know, the, the history there is, is what it is. Uh, the KISS fans will always be KISS fans. I, I think it's so much fun to debate and discuss that stuff. I think, you know, my only problem with KISS is that there's a segment of their audience that won't allow you to have these debates and discussions. It's like, you know, you have to be 100% on board and love every single thing ever, and whatever they're selling you today is the mandate. You have to fall under that, and I just think that's ludicrous, and I'll never do that. I mean, I've said that many times no matter what the band is 
Air, for me, Aerosmith, Kiss, UFO, whatever the bands I absolutely worship, I could objectively tell you about periods of their career that I did not like and I was not a fan of. And I'm easily, I'm willing to say that. Everybody, if they really objectively look at the bands that they love, are going to point to periods of times or things that they did that you didn't like. That's what being a fan is. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's some fans that are so unbelievably sensitive about it that you just, you know, if you question one thing and you're not, or I shouldn't even just say fans, <laughs> some people in bands that feel that way. Um, and if, if you don't fall in line with the mandate of the day, you're, you're cast out. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. I, I, take, I take pride in being a fan of all these guys. And in my heart, I know that I've supported the hell out of them consistently when, when very few people did, especially during the lean years of the 90s. And still do. Even if, I, even if I'm not down with what they're doing, I still do. And, and it's, and it's true, consistent support. And that's what start, that's why I started doing this. And that's why I still do it. But I also firmly believe that everybody is entitled to their opinion, whether I agree or not, and should not be afraid to express it. And that's one of the things I love doing so much on a daily basis on my daily Sirius XM show, which I start, which started almost two years ago, but to have a platform every day, I'm going to go on the air at two o'clock Eastern and then for two hours, I'm going to talk to people and artists about rock and I'm going to take calls from people all over the U S and Canada with their opinions, telling me they agree. They disagree. They like this. They don't like this. I love that. We need more of it. Honest, open debate. You shouldn't be afraid to give your opinions, whether I agree or not that dialogue, that back and forth. I love that stuff. And, uh, one of my favorite things that I'm currently doing in my career is having the opportunity to do that uh, every day with with my audience. And 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 uh, and I'll, I'll leave it at that because we've reached an hour, and I know you do have to get to to your son's birthday and stuff. But uh, absolute pleasure having you on today, and, and a great chat. And I think you know, I, I do think we we share a, the same passion and the same love for rock, and it's 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 just great to have people out there talking about it, keeping it visible, keeping it in the public mind. And, uh, you know, hey, so thank you. Thank you for all you do. Well, thank you, Mitch. I appreciate you saying that. And, and, and you know, I look at the, the whole, you know, rock fans, especially these days. I mean, we're, we, we have to look out for each other. We have to try to support each other the best we can and, uh, and try to you know, help keep this music vibrant and alive. And, again, even if you don't agree or you don't like it, you know, have the, you know, find having the platform to say it, you know, just – just be able to, you know, express your thoughts. I mean, I, I'm, I'm so not a fan of this sort of PC world where everything has to be so sensitive and so, I mean, you know, let's, let's have the debate. You know, okay, you like Greta Van Fleet, great. You think Greta Van Fleet's a cheesy Zeppelin ripoff, okay, great. I love the Struts. You think the Struts are a pop band? Maybe they are. Let's talk about that. I mean, I love doing that about new stuff, old stuff, uh, bands that should retire, bands that shouldn't. It's it's all great, and uh, I think what you're doing is great with it as well. And I wish you nothing but luck uh, with with the podcast and everything you got going. And you know, it's 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 it, to me, it's it's you know, anyone out there waving the flag for rock and helping to keep the stuff going is really really important. So everybody needs to kind of huddle together here to keep our music alive. Yep, I so agree. Uh, so I'll, I'll end on that. Thank you, sir. Always always a pleasure to chat with you and. Uh... Looking forward to seeing you at the next uh, festival, at the next show, and hopefully your 
touring access show will bring you up to some of the festivals in Montreal, you know, heavy Montreal and, and Montreal 77 with the punk one, you know, hopefully we will see you up. Here. Yeah, I would, I would hope so. You know, the Sirius XM show is broadcast through Canada. I get a lot of calls from Canada. So hopefully that might be a catalyst for that at some point. I, I was offered a chance to do something at heavy Montreal once, but didn't work out scheduling wise. I've, I've had, I haven't not gotten to Canada nearly as much as I wanted to. I went up to, to Toronto and I did some stuff with uh, I reunited Triumph, and I had Bob Ezrin on. So I did some stuff there. But um, I'm overdue for another trip, so hopefully sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Thanks, Mitch. Appreciate it. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.